Welcome to the 21st Century Schizoid Podcast. I'm your host, Cooper Cherry. Today we have uh, Dr. Yvonne Marquez of Texas State, a professor in the philosophy department there at Texas State. So thank you for coming out today and joining us, Dr. Marquez. Thank you very much. Um, what I, how I'd like to start out today is maybe just give us a little bit of a rundown on sort of your academic background and kind of what your primary uh, areas, of, areas of study have been and, and kind of how that informs your interests. Yeah, um, I started studying biology at the um, University of Puerto Rico, and um, soon thereafter, I started taking philosophy classes, and um, I decided just to get a double major um, in biology. I mostly worked in um, population genetics, and um, and in philosophy, I was in a department that um, had a history of philosophy orientation, so that's how I did it. And then when I graduated, I decided to... Um, go into um, a PhD program to study history and philosophy of science. Once I went that route, I, um, I got a master's in mostly in history and philosophy of science. And then at some point I decided that I was interested in issues that although had to do with like knowledge and the production of knowledge also had to do with um, cultural and political dimensions of a lot of those kinds of processes. So, um, so I ended up with a writing a dissertation in um, the role of reason in in, um, in what is called the project of modernity, and um, and I was interested in, in especially in the crisis of modernity, what what it which is called you know and and how that gets diagnosed and and the types of prescriptions that you get out of people like um, Michel Foucault and like Jürgen Habermas. Jean-Francois Lyotard and, and in the United States, the work of Richard Gordy. So in the end, that's what I did. And since then, I've done a lot of different things I, you know, I finished in 1995. So I've been, I've been out in the academic world now for like whatever, 22 years. And um, mostly I'm interested in clusters of concepts and how they work and how they're connected to forms of life. And um, in hence, I've explored different clusters um, just to flesh out what what are the presuppositions, what are the values contained in those clusters and what type of experiences of life and ways of being in the world they allow. And um, so, so that's what I what I mostly do. And, and then I do what I call intervention. So I go into different fields and I just study them. Um, lately, I've been interested in in the political landscape I used to do a lot of, you know, courses and writings in politics, but um, I moved away from that some years back, and now I'm kind of getting back into it, and, um, and hence I've, I've been looking at the political landscape in the United States and, um, and trying to come up with an understanding of, of what's going on, really. Right. I think that's uh, definitely that's sort of a interest of mine as well. I think it's very interesting too that you'll have the approach of having a little bit of grounding in science and that world that I don't think you know what I mean. That's always a common criticism of the humanities is there's no kind of grounding in this empirical world and what have you. So I think that's an interesting uh, benefit to your to, to having you on today. Thank you. You'll yeah. be able to provide us a very interesting concept yeah. or a context. I think. But um, I just to give you a little background on me, I 
got my undergrad in English. Actually, they're at Texas State, so I double major in English and sociology, and then uh, I got my master's in mass communication uh, with, the, with the concentration in new media. And so, you know, I had the sort of theoretical background of, you know, through both taking philosophy courses and English being exposed to a lot of postmodern theory as part of the humanities. Um, and it's something that I think has really always fascinated me. The ideas, I mean, when I first encountered Derrida's, you know, the idea of deconstruction, I was very threatened by that idea. I, I wanted to reject that. But as time grew, I kind of got very, uh, it just fascinated me. And Foucault, and I think even more so right now, at this moment, Baudrillard is somebody that I think really just, I mean, wow, I wish he was alive today. I'd love to hear what he would say about uh, about the current situation. So um, let's go ahead and jump right in and maybe discuss sort of the the background, maybe starting out with semiotics would be a good introduction to sort of the genesis of, of sort of the primacy of language being becoming examined from a philosophical standpoint. Yeah, I mean, the fact is that in the history of Western philosophy, like, you know, the what people call the, you know, the narrative of this history, the, the role of language has been present ever since Plato, so to speak, you know, um, you know, right at the beginning, Plato's idea about philosophy and thought was one that was very closely connected to language and to a, to a type of way of speaking. I mean, it was connected to the Socratic, you know, the Socratic method. But once you get to Plato and Plato's interpretation of like what Socrates was doing, what you already get, it's a type of mutation into, into something that is not simply a method of discourse, but simply a claim that within language you have access to some concepts that give you access to the way the world really is you know access to to speaking kind of like heideggerian terms access to being and hence you get then you get or you, you travel that arch to the other side and then you have you know a guy like heidegger saying that language is the house of being um and and hence you know this preoccupation with language um and how it um, either gives us access to being or, or the other way of looking at it, which is in a way connected to what you're trying to get at, um, it, it shapes and conforms, you know, you know, experiences of being in the world, um, you know, has been there from the get-go. Um, and hence what, what I think has happened throughout the ages is simply a series of redescriptions of of what language actually does, and secondly, what the powers and and potentials of of this dynamic are. And at some points, you have very um very close connections being claimed about the connection between you know language and the way we, the world is, and in other at other times you have a um. A looser connection between these two things um and um and hence you know a, a in some cases a more modest claim about about truth so to speak um you know and that connects to this whole idea about about you know um you know the crisis of truth now that people talk about or the idea of um of um 
relativism, you know, which are, you know, which are very, um, very broad, simplistic ways of describing, you know, individual positions. And, and in fact, I think the place that we're really in, you know, um, and, and hence, you know, I mean, for instance, there's the issue of postmodernism, um, which a lot of people that are, you know, involved in the humanities and criticizing the humanities, um, you know, throw this term around and they, 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 they talk about it and, and, and they want to get a lot of mileage out of that descriptor. And, um, and the descriptor in a way it's, it's a handy one because it's one that resonates in contemporary society and it's one that is broad enough to cover a lot of things but those concepts that cover a lot at the same time are concepts that end up explaining very little and and hence i always you know it's not that i'm against using terms of that kind but i always think that they need to be teased out and see what's really in there so for example when people talk about the postmodern condition or what people call like the crisis of postmodernism or when people talk about you know that this crisis is basically one about relativism and about, you know, individualism or lack of individualism, depending, because, I mean, it gets to the point that sometimes people are claiming even opposite things about the same thing. Um, you know, I think that whole thing needs to be placed in a historical context in order to really start making sense right. of it. And hence, I think if you want, we, we, we could start talking about, you know, modernism as a development of of what and secondly postmodernism as a reaction to what really right because i think that's really that's what's really going to ground this thing in yeah. something rather than that or rather than really nothing right no i i absolutely i think that's a smart idea and good starting point to kind of interpolate yeah i mean for instance you know By now, people use the concept postmodernism, especially the people that are, that are detractors. They use it as an emotive concept. It's a concept that just has emotional content, and it is just very similar to using a concept like like heretic or like you know atheist or like you right. know you're a bad person. You know those concepts are they appear to be descriptors, but mostly what they carry is emotive weight, um, and hence you know one can engage in a whole discourse about throwing emotive terms back and forth and you know you can gather some individuals that want to follow you in your in your love or in your hate and you can you know you can you can go at it like that or you can simply just really what i would call you can really do the work and do the homework and basically try to see what these things really could mean and, and and tease out the different meanings and trace them backwards, so to speak. Right. So, so for instance, I mean, the case of postmodernism, the fact is that the word, you know, suggests that postmodernism is something that came after something, right? So it appears that what is before is, I, w I would gather it would be modernism, you know. Um, well, modernism, in a way also can be divided into three things which normally get bundled together but in fact they're not one of them is the most the smallest and closest to to the term which is simply the term modernism 
you know, modernism, it's a, it's a, it's a aesthetic movement in the arts. And specifically, it's one that you see coming out, first of all, in poetry, in like turn of the century Paris, and then also it's one that you see um, in, um, in architecture. So there was like modernist architecture and there was modernist poetry. And you know, you can, you can draw the line somewhere and talk about an origin. You could say that the person, the first modernist was a person like Charles Baudelaire. You know, some people claim that he really invented the modern as an aesthetic concept. And you know, and the modern as an aesthetic concept was one that was gonna be one that rejected the past and tradition and embraced innovation. Um, secondly, it was one that actually took art and took aesthetic creation out of simply a utilitarian framework and just made art as something that had its own value and end in itself. Right. You know, so, so, so there's that, and that, 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 that first place where we can anchor this idea. And, um, and hence when you get yourself to post-modernity, what you're really claiming is that whatever that project was, it's no more. It has mutated. It has mutated because it has simply changed or it has mutated because it has, or it has ran its course and it has ended, so to speak. So sometimes postmodernism is simply a, a claim of the death of modernity, well, the death of modernism, you know. And, you know, for instance, you know, you have... Um, during the 20th century, you have a lot of like modernist architecture. One of them that is very important to talk about as a movement is Bauhaus, you know, in Germany, where you have a whole school of architecture that claim that by designing things in new ways and claiming a certain type of new criterion of form, you could actually revolutionize life. And it was going to be a life that was going to end up not having the old hierarchies. It was a life that was going to allow people to have new experiences. It was a life that was going to create experience, social experiences of accountability and transparency. Um, it was one that was going to be fully rational and in a way devoid of like other secondary concepts, so to speak. And in a way, in the end, it was going to be a life that by being non-hierarchical and and breaking up from the past, it was going to allow people social emancipation, you know. Um, and they ran with it for a very long time, and then the Second World War happened, and you know, you know, national socialism happened in Germany, and um, and a lot of those people migrated to the United States, and then they continued with their modernist agenda, especially in Chicago. So you get a lot of the buildings that are like in the you know, in, in downtown Chicago are buildings that were built according to that aesthetics, according to that um, model and, um, and built by those, those very same people. Um, once you get to like the 1960s, especially in a place like New York City, you know, that modernist impulse has mutated and it's, it's, getting, it's getting to the end of the line. So you get the people that are involved in the avant-garde, and people that are involved in pop art in New York, 
people like Andrew and, and you know, Andy Warhol, but many other people, um, you know, like the Kooning, you, you were already at a place where basically these people are running out of this impulse of innovation in a way. All the old forms have been destroyed and, and, um, and decomposed and all the new radical innovations have been tried out, so to speak, and hence we're getting to the very end of the line. And in fact, at the very end of the line, you just get actually a, a type of new reflection on simply the very possibility of like, of, of, of art. You get people now that are reflecting on simply the institution of art as even in an institution that, 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 that makes sense. So the very last stretch was simply, you know, in a way, imploding the very notion of art that had been created whatever a century or two centuries before right and um and, and hence you know you get people like you know you know like marcel duchamp doing doing things that really talk about you know a critique of museums and a critique of um of of like you know the art object right. or the discourse of art itself mm -hmm. right yeah and that's when you get to the end of that line. And in a way, people would say that the, some people claim that the avant-garde is already the beginning of postmodernism. Other people claim that actually the avant-garde finishes modernism. And what you get after that is the postmodern. The postmodern came out, first of all, in architecture. And it came out as actually as a return to the old historical form. So for a lot of people, it was actually a type of like, you know, historicism. You know, so you get buildings that are being built according to, you know, forms that in a way are evocative of old forms. And then you get also a, an emphasis on like, you know, on pastiche, you know, there's nothing new to, to propose. So hence what you do is you ju juxtapose different forms that are basically gathered from different, um, you know, from different historical periods. And, um, and hence, you know, the first definition of the postmodern is actually a definition that comes out of architecture and it comes out of that particular, you know, project, so to speak. So, so that's like, that's exhibit A, so to speak. Then there's exhibit B, you know, and exhibit B, it's, it's, it's one that is connected to what we call, you know, the notion of the modern is applied to to socioeconomics so to speak and hence you know the 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 postmodern is actually a conversation about like social and economic modernization you know so you take a society that is fundamentally traditional that just simply organizes itself both socially and, and economically and you actually reshape it according to the logic of what is called the logic of modernization so you like automatize it you create further and further levels of division of labor, you um, create like um, social relationships that all boil down to economic transactions. And hence you basically socially engineer a new society around a social and economic dynamic that people claim is it's, it's ultimately the logic of capitalism. Um, it's done, it was done perhaps unconsciously in places like Europe, the first place that that happened was in England during like the Industrial Revolution after the Glorious Revolution of like whatever, the 17th century. But once you get to the way, for example, the British powers managed their, their empire, what you really see happening in a lot of the colonies is actually a very deliberate process of actually modernization. You take these places 
and you restructure them so that you can integrate them into into the the production process of capitalism and hence the societies get modernized very quickly but through a top-down model and he created all sorts of disruptions social disruptions and economic disruptions and all sorts of like destruction um, in fact a lot of the legacy of colonialism is a legacy of what happened to those societies through a top-down process of um, of um, of modernization, but it not only happened there; it even happened in places like you know, you know, places like like communist Russia and, and you know and and communist China, where you know these communist revolutions, be it the Maoist revolution or be it the um, you know the Bolshevik revolution. They were not really, they were anti-capitalist, but they were not anti-modern. And in fact, what you really have in this place is Stalinism is just simply a whole process of taking a society and making it um, run according to an ideological model of social organization and economic organization. And, and you, you know, in, the, in, in, in all the literature that was written during the early part of the 20th century by people like Lenin, for example, and Trotsky, you get a whole debate about the idea of the feasibility of taking a society and making it, to quote Marx, making it skip historical stages and kind of like accelerate them willfully into communism, if that was even possible. In the past, Marx had suggested that societies evolve historically and that actually capitalism is a stage that will lead then to socialism, which is a stage that also has inner contradictions that finally will beget as communism, and then that would be the end of history. What you see in the case of like, you know, Lenin and Stalin and a place, person like Mao is actually a, a new argument that you can actually take a society at whatever stage of development it is, and you can actually, by a process of vanguardist directed you know social engineering you can actually make it jump historical stages and get themselves to to communism and um you know some people say that the legacy of that is actually 20 million dead people in the soviet union during the stalinist years bunch of multi-million deaths in maoist china too so it's actually bullying a whole human population into a new way of living um and hence you know so that's another way of understanding the modern and then in that case the postmodern would be simply a claim about about what happened to that project you know what happened to this project of taking societies and first of all conforming them in those terms and secondly doing it on purpose deliberately through a top-down model. And you have it happening both again in communist Russia, in communist, you know, in the Soviet Union and in this in, in communist China, but you also have it, for example, recently in the process of neoliberalism, where you take countries that have been considered third world countries and like, you know, you you give them money loans, but the loans come with strings, and the strings are that, that society needs to conform. To, to ways that are going to ensure that those loans are going to be paid back, for example. And hence, you know, it's an imposition of neoliberal policies and a type of neoliberal economics based on 
based on loans that these governments receive. So the, the, the idea of modernization is one that is still being played out. Um, what is really happening right now is that we're getting to a place where, where people are trying to figure out where is it that this modernization is taking us? And, you know, you have several problems. One of them is the problem of the problem that the one that we have in place right now, the modernization that we have in place, it's, it's creating really, you know, high levels of economic inequality everywhere, including in the United States. Secondly, you have the second problem that is actually this modernization is it's leading to ecological ecological effects that actually seem to suggest that this particular way of operating is not sustainable. And third, there are people that are claiming that this process of modernization simply not only destroys traditional societies, but it even destroys the, the, the liberal democratic society that you and I take for granted in the United States as actually as, as the good life, so to speak. And hence, we're getting to a place just to give these things names. We're getting a play to a place where actually post-capitalist economics and post-capitalist society is turning out to be a very dysfunctional society. And what that suggests is actually that the process, that, that modernization as an ethos might not be the best way to go. And maybe we need to actually kind of like go back, so to speak, to older ways of doing things, which is what some sort of cultural, cultural conservatives would suggest, or that actually we can think of new utopian models, just ones that actually operate according to a new logic. So in that regard, some people talk about alternative modernities or they talk about hybrid modernities or what have you. So that's exhibit B. And then, and then exhibit C, it's, it's one where, where you actually take an even more macroscopic view and you just talk about modernity as a, as a big historical period that start with the enlightenment and with the breakaway from feudalism and the breakaway from aristocracy and the breakaway from, from like, you know, you know, clerical institutionalized religion and you make, um, you make a, a claim about the potential of, of humans and the potential of human society that, that is a claim that is actually individualistic and progressivist. And by that, what I mean is that you, you, you establish a vision of human historical development where human beings are going to be permanently evolving individually and socially towards the direction of greater, greater creativity, greater, greater um, development of their inner potentiality, and also greater, greater welfare, welfare as a group. And it's also one that includes ideas about individualism and ideas about democracy as part of how that process um, comes about. And, um, and hence you get first, like the way what developed by people like, people like, you know, John Locke or people like, you know, um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau or people like, you know, Immanuel Kant or people like, you know, even people like Marx in the end, um, which are all really fundamentally enlightenment thinkers and also all of them incredibly um, optimistic. Well, Rousseau not as much, but all the other ones incredibly optimistic about what, what the human potential had in store. And it is an embrace also of like a new idea of time in the past time was thought about historically i mean cyclically so time was just a circular thing that repeated itself on and on and on another way of looking at time was actually a type of like you know 
you know, a type of like time connected to, to, to theology, to eschatology, the idea that, you know, that there is time, but there's only divine time. So human beings are here trying to prepare themselves for like the judgment day and the end of times, you know. So in that regard, there was a vector of time instead of being circular, it's kind of going forward, but it's going forward in a way that is just connected to God's plan and what have you. And in a way, what a lot of modernity did is that actually it took this linear notion of time and actually secularized it and simply claimed that actually, no, human beings are creatures of history and that actually the end of time is not a theological notion about the judgment day or whatever, but actually the end of time is actually equivalent to actually the end of history. And the end of history is the idea of not like we're going to get redemption in heaven and the good people are going to go there and the bad people will get their proper judgment, but actually it's one about a, a type of like utopian mode of existence for humans on earth. So it's actually in a way the garden of Eden, but on earth, you know, it's the ideas of progress, infinite progress and science is going to answer all the questions and, and we're going to finally live like, you know, live forever, so to speak, right. and be, be totally happy. And then, and then hence, like, you know, in that regard, postmodernity becomes actually the crisis of, of this project and the logic of it, and also the crisis of all these illusions. I mean, I don't mean illusions in the sense of like these distortions, but all these hopes, Right. You know, and, and in a way, one way of understanding the postmodern sensibility is actually as a type of like, you know, as a type of like um, disillusionment about the the utopian possibilities of human emancipation, according to one particular narrative of how that was supposed to happen. And hence, as you can see, like the idea of really postmodernism includes a lot of components that have like their own genealogy, so to speak. Right. And and in order to talk about them, one has to kind of like, you know, separate them and, and, and see see what's what's really there um, as a claim and also as a critique. So I I think oftentimes, I, I guess, is Kant would be sort of the spokesperson for the Enlightenment and, you know, many consider him to be the greatest philosopher in, of history. What about his project is... What are other than you know? I'm familiar a little bit with the categorical imperative, but I think there's maybe a break in thought that he introduced that I don't really know how to articulate. Maybe you could speak a little bit about that. To, that way, can kind of situate us for later discussion. I mean, a person like Foucault, who was interested in like you know the idea of modern reason and, and the idea of the crisis of modernity, he did it in his own way. In fact, he did it like three different ways in his own way. Um, depending on which which stage of his development you, you, you look at, he would claim that the, the text that in a way, I mean, all these are just symbolic gestures anyway, but he would claim that the text that really embodies this new, this new historical spirit of modernity is a text that, that, um, that Immanuel Kant wrote, which was an essay for, for, for a newspaper where the newspaper had, proposed a question to be answered by the public. I mean, that was quite common back then, you know, newspapers wanted to, you know, promote, um, you know, civic dialogue, and they would propose a question and, you know, the public, anybody was welcome to write an answer. And one of the questions was, you know, what is enlightenment and, and Immanuel Kant wrote an answer. So there's an essay called, you know, the answer to the question, what is enlightenment? And it is an essay where he says that enlightenment is actually 
you know, um, mankind's break from from the shackles of any type of tutelage and an embrace of their own reason and um, and a type of like affirmation of it of of of, of a of, of daring to use their own exercise of rationality and 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 and, and act accordingly so in a way it's it's a claim about the possibilities of every human being to exercise reason in a way that will allow them to exercise autonomy and ultimately through that autonomy to be able to become people that can exercise self-determination so in a way it's it's the it's, it's the ultimate claim of human emancipation because it's a, it's a human emancipation that is deeply personal deeply individual but at the same time one that it's possessed by everybody in a way it's a type of like metaphysical freedom it's like the it, it's a freedom that is not conferred to you from the outside it's actually one that yeah, you need to have some initial conditions on the outside that allow this process to happen, but it's one that emanates fully from the inside. And hence, this was incredibly revolutionary. Um, and it was incredibly um, groundbreaking, you know. And, um, and, and, and hence, we, we, we went from there, so to speak. And Kantian morality, in a way, it's, it's a type of morality that is very much built around, around this idea that morality is actually the exercise of this type of autonomy and also the respect, the mutual respect, a reciprocal respect between people um, where we recognize that possibility in every person and we respect it in our interactions with them. I mean, he, he refers to this as treating people as, as ends in themselves rather than as means to an end. Um, and it has shaped the way that we think about, you know, human rights and the way we think about, you know, violations of human rights and the way we think about the notion of freedom, you know, certainly in the past 200 years, which is, you know, basically the Kantian influence. I mean, Kant died in like, you know, um, in like um, 1803. Um, and hence, you know, um, that's, you know, it's basically we're talking about 200 years of history. Um, the the 19th and the 20th century can be seen as centuries where actually this project of modernity was was attempted you know societies especially european societies tried to like you know make this work out first it was attempted by means of a liberal type of philosophy where basically we promote liberty both political social and economic liberty that will unleash human energies that will simply deliver us there um later on you get this is a very simplified you know narrative but but one that it gets some things some fundamentals right the second component is simply the second wave of that attempt is the attempt to you know of, of all the socialists you know during the 19th century especially and the socialists claimed that um that what you have is it's um what you have is a situation that will require more than simply a simple unleashing of, of, of human liberty and human potentiality in the way that the liberals have talked about, but also that we needed to, to break down certain, you know, um, social structures that were in place, mostly of an economic kind that in a way were enslaving some people at, you know, and liberating others at the expense of those that got enslaved. 
which is basically you know Marx's idea of of of, um, of societies as 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 totalities that that have intrinsically a, a type of like you know conflict between between different social classes so to speak and hence you you get all the socialist projects some utopian and some not non-utopian um where where you're actually trying to continue this project of human emancipation but now according to a new set of rules so to speak um and then finally you get yourself through the 20th century and you just get you know all all kinds of communist experiments um and also fascist experiments mind you um you know if you read for example Mussolini's doctrine of fascism in the end he's also interested in 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 human liberation the thing that he's interested in the type of liberation that is that is one that is achieved by the individual by him or her being subsumed under a collectivity and that collectivity being organized and directed and managed by by an elite of people that are incredibly um talented that in a way can can in a way can better place the average human in, in a position to partake in 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 this greater way of existing because the idea of, of, of for example of Mussolini and a lot of these fascist thinkers was that human beings are although yeah in principle we all have the capacity to to reason and the capacity for autonomous thought but we're not all strictly strictly equal there's some there's an elite of of a natural elite of humans that simply it's better equipped is simply more creative and more willful and more resourceful and that those people should be allowed to lead the way as a vanguard because in the end they will create a collective experience that will be better for everybody so it's kind of like a type of trickle down <laughs> a type of trickle down you know utopia where the leaders create these awesome conditions and we kind of like partake it in it by by helping to construct it but also then enjoying the fruits of it once it is constructed so to speak and interestingly enough when you really think about the 21st century a lot of people live lives that are quite passive a lot of people live lives that are quite alienated a lot of people live lives where they actually are unemployed or subemployed but a lot of people still claim for themselves a certain kind of like you know freedom and a certain modicum of like high quality of life but they they claim it as a consumer so i cannot you know for example an individual might not be able to draw or might not be particularly creative or might not have particularly high levels of resources or access to resources but that, that individual can go and watch like you know they can go and watch like a lord of the ring movie or they can play an amazing video game and they can then vicariously inhabit a place of the mind that seems liberating and seems wonderful but it is a world that is made possible by a small elite of human beings that create all these wonderful experiences and hence you know we are claiming that the 21st century and, and the united states is, is well, certainly the 20th century is the century of democracy the 21st century is a century of democracy but what i really see when i look around is actually the 21st century is a century where everybody has access to actually to vicarious experiences that are being built by an elite of people that are incredibly talented 
incredibly resourceful and actually people that have access to an immense amount of capital. And, and hence, you know, I think is one of the ironies of the, of the 21st century that although we claim that we're, we're, we're in the century of democracy and of human empowerment, when I really look at a lot of people's experience, what I really see is actually a return to the world of the ants. You know, we're just these little ants that now participate and partake in this information economy and in this information world, but mostly we participate in it as actually as passive consumers of it rather than as actually real creators, not to mention movers and shakers, whatever, you know, that's like, that's actually absolutely like not the case for most people. Um, but, you know, going back to this idea of, of, of postmodernism, one good place to start really just looking at it in more detail is to look at the work of Jean-Francois Lyotard. Because Jean-Francois Jean Lyotard wrote a book in the early 80s called like The Postmodern Condition, where he tries to explain, you know, what the postmodern condition is at the level of like politics and at the level of history and at the level of like, you know, what is called epistemology, which is at the level of like, you know, knowledge, the construction of knowledge and the um, and, and human beings as, as cognizers. Um, and for him, the postmodern condition was defined by a crisis in the what he calls the crisis of meta narratives. But by, by a meta narrative, he meant a narrative account that human beings construct together with other human beings to explain the way things are and to justify the way things are. And what he wanted to claim about the postmodern condition is that during the Enlightenment and during modern times, Western Europe, and, or, or at certainly Western civilization, had created a few narratives that carried this type of like normative explanatory component and that claimed validity both as truth and also validity is actually as is, is, something that carries social and political legitimacy. And what he claimed that has happened in the past 200 years is actually an erosion of people's faith in, in those narratives as being ones that describe the truth of the matter. And secondly, as ones that can kind of like simply provide their own, their own legitimation. And, um, and there's a lot of different ways that this has played out. I mean, one of the ways that it has played out is through like the history in Western Europe, the history of like, you know, of like the great wars, right? The first and second world war, you know, which some people claim that those wars came out of actually, in a way, a project of modernity gone, gone wrong, so to speak. Um, and hence, you know, what he claims is that one of the things that has happened, an, another component is that actually in the past 200 years, we have emphasized the exercise of reason. And what has come out of that exercise of reason is actually that reason in a way undermines its own basis. So in a way, and this is something that Nietzsche talked about. Nietzsche talked about how, you know, this bourgeois values of individualism and of rationality, what they end up doing is actually they end up undermining those very same values and taking humanity, especially he was interested in Western culture, right? Taking Western culture into a place of, to a headspace of nihilism. And in a way, then the funny thing is that 
out of the exercise of reason instead of getting liberation and 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 self-realization what actually what you get is actually nihilism and the exhaustion of european culture so to speak the death of the death of that culture and hence you know nietzsche spent the second half of his life just interested in finding a way out he spent the first part of his life so to speak trying to diagnose the problem and then the second part was trying to diagnose trying to come up with the solution and i think still nietzsche's question and nietzsche's problem is actually the problem that we have right now it's kind of like how do we go forwards and what we see for example in the case of contemporary times is that we have lost the capacity to agree on a single narrative that will guide you know social development and you know economic investment and, and and political decisions and what we have is actually an explosion of like you know particularistic narratives so we move from one overarching universal meta narrative that everybody agrees upon based for example on enlightened values and ideas about the powers of science to discover the truth and so on and so forth and the powers of that process to produce human emancipation and great quality of life to to one where actually now we we, we live in a world that is like a babble you know it's, it's cacophonous there's all these different voices now what we claim is something that we call like epistemic privilege which basically is kind of like my pain is actually unassailable and my pain is not questionable my my vantage point is simply um needs to be respected because all there is to it is actually people's perspectives and hence you know in a way is a perversion of the kantian idea the kantian idea is that everybody can exercise reason and liberate and and, and act autonomously but it was based on a universal statement about about humanity at large but that universality has been eliminated from the picture and now all that we're left with is actually you need to ex respect my particularism just like i will respect your particularism except that that's all that we got we just got you have your take on things i have my take on things your take is different from mine but your take is actually unassailable by me because once i start to try to like you know criticize it what i'm doing is actually i'm violating your epistemic I'm violating your epistemic privilege, you know, in a way, kind of like I'm, you know, one, one cynical way of speaking about it. I'm not acknowledging your pain, for example, you know, and I might want to try to like get out of that and try to understand this thing as a matter of facts or try to understand it in ways that we can develop a type of intersubjective agreement, but you can simply just decide that you're not going to, you're not going to take that move in the game that you're just going to simply retrench yourself and be like no i mean i'm here in this corner i'm not going to engage with you like that you need to take me in my terms or else you don't take me and then i might claim foul so to speak and a lot of identity politics especially the way it's criticized by the conservatives it's one where what's going on is something like that so like you know the gender identities fight amongst each other the ethnic identities fight amongst each other the political ideological identities fight amongst each other the economic ideologies fight amongst each other the religious ideologies or identities fight amongst each other but there seemed to be a lack of a possibility of of, of everybody 
reverting or 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 finding a translation or a bridge into some sort of like common language that will allow us to create intersubjective agreement or even the possibility of meaningful conversation, you know. And I mean, it is a real problem. And the fact is that Leotard says that once you cannot agree on the metanarratives because the reason in a way undermines its own claims to universality, what you end up is actually with local or, or small scale narratives that have values that the problem is that those values are incommensurable. So you might tell me that you're all about family and I might tell you that I'm all about, you know, um, professional development. And the fact is that this is like apples and oranges and we cannot really quite get out of that impasse, you know, and there are different ways of trying to, trying to solve it. Right. I mean, one of the ways that the conservatives try to solve it is actually to make, to restate the claim that actually that there are metanarratives, you know, so some conservative thinkers are trying to go back to the idea of, of, um, of the enlightenment project. They're like, no, 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 no. Let's go back to the idea of science. Let's go back to the idea of reason. Let's still go back to the idea of a type of universal discourse. Let's go back to read the canonical texts where people were kind of like trying to propose these ideas and, um, and, and let's move in that direction. Um, some of them do it differently. Some of them actually say, this is a big mess. So what we're going to go is we're going to go back to God. And also we're going to go back to tradition. And tradition is something that they define. I mean, tradition is not something other than the fact that actually they also have a narrative and they're right. just claiming that we all have to follow it. I mean, because ultimately that's exactly what it means. Um, and, um, and, and that's kind of like where we find ourselves. And, and, and in a way I do sympathize with some conservative critiques of the humanities because what I see, for example, in my experience in my classrooms, it's actually a type of conversation in the classroom where the students are very eager and, and, um, and very capable of telling you how is it that they feel about X, Y, or Z, but they have, they're very ill-equipped to move beyond that first person level of like, this is my, my truth or whatever, or this is my opinion, or, or this is my perspective. And, and engage, first of all, engage with some features of the world that are independent of their feelings, you know, like kind of like the, what I call the realness, you know, and also to engage with other people in some dialogue that tries to attempt at some sort of convergence. So what we have now is a type of like high school scenario where what we do is we sit there and you tell me, you show me your, your, your scratch and I show you my, my bruise. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, your bruise is very purple. And I say, yeah, and your scratch looks really gnarly. And then the professor or the teacher applauds you because you guys are exercising tolerance, are exercising empathy, and are exercising the capacity to understand the other one in their own terms. But out of that, you don't create collective action, you know. And hence, you know, however, in the meantime, and this is important to be said, however, in the meantime, there is actually an economic system that does have its act together and that does operate according to one ineluctable logic and it operates 24 hours a day. And while you and I are showing each other our, our wounds, so to speak, and empathizing about them and understanding them and, you know, putting myself in your shoes, 
but not really being able to move from that to a type of like convergence that would allow us to kind of like create a type of social glue or, or, or would allow us to create what is called like collective will formation. In the meantime, there's a whole economic system that does operate according to a unified mode, you know, is what we call, is what we call the global system of like financial capitalism. And they are not operating on, according to a model of self-doubt or any of that stuff. They, you know, they know what they're doing and they, they do it well, you know. Um, and, and hence, you know, if societies and the individuals in those societies don't find a way to transcend these different narratives and, and, and find some commonality of account, and secondly, find a way to create real social glue among each other. They're always going to be killed by the social, by, by the by, by the economic system that is just simply producing, reproducing itself, and infiltrating every single area of life. I mean, and and Leotard talks about this, and he he says that society is becoming an information society, and is becoming an information society by the by the establishment of a whole technological system that is integrating humans resources and um and and is actually being able to harvest and to gather and to and to generate information for for its own efficiency so to speak and what ends up happening is that you know you and i are end up getting either you and i become capable of integrating ourselves into the system and we become pot people right or become part of like you know part of the system you know Either you, you know, you work on IT or whatever, or like you work in the media or what have you. you, you insert yourself in this engine and then you, you, you know, you will get your, your desserts or you're just simply left outside. And if you're left outside, you know, if you cannot find a way of like building this, these common understandings with other people, you're going to be left completely marginalized, both socially, politically, and also, well, consequently, economically marginalized. And, and, and that's what, that's what, that brings us to like 2016, right? Or 2017, you know, certainly 2016 during the election, right? So you have like probably about 90 people, I mean, 90 million Americans, you know, that are precisely like that. They're actually in small to middle towns all over the United States. You know, they, um, they're like, they have no economic viability. They are politically and socially disenfranchised. And they are, oh, the world are flipping out. Um, and then you have two parties. And one of the parties claims that fundamentally everything is fundamentally fine and that what we really need to do is just to tweak a few things, you know, that's like, you know, that, that tells the discourse of like, you know, the Obama Clinton discourse that, you know, we're fundamentally on the right track and what you just need to do is simply more of it. And now we move to another person to do it because whatever Barack Obama's eight years are done. So now we need to just, you know, do more of the same with the next person. Right. And then you get it, you know, a Republican Party that was claiming kind of a similar thing, but with a little bit more disgruntledness. You you got the, you know, you had you had basically simply the other flavor of that. What we need is actually more deregulation. Basically, the old you know 
the old back and forth between the two parties. In the case of Hillary Clinton, everything is fundamentally the same. We just need to acknowledge more the issues of identity politics and kind of like create female empowerment and, you know, African-American empowerment and all this, all this empowerment, so to speak. And then you get the Republicans saying everything is fundamentally the same. What we need to do is simply unleash the economic powers by actually lowering taxes. That's just to make it super simple, you know, or, or by making government smaller, although their governments have always been huge anyway. Um, and, um, and then in the two parties, you have actually the fringe people. You have a guy, you know, um, Bernie Sanders, who, interestingly enough, for most people, it escaped the fact that he ran for 25 years of political career as actually as an independent socialist, literally a socialist. If you look at his history and also his claims, in fact, he has the, the dubious claim of being the first socialist politician elected to, to Congress, you know, and um, it's there, it's, one, it's, it's his achievement. He will always be in a history books as the first <laughs> socialist. He didn't run as a socialist, but he did run as an individual that says that no, everything is not fine at all. And the fact is that the, you know, the Democratic Party, it's a party of like, you know, global capitalism and it's a party that distracts people by a claim by claims about identity politics but identity politics is actually a cultural gimmick you know so what he does is he tries to defend in a way social democratic values we're gonna get like single-payer health plan we're gonna get universal education you know go back to like the fundamental ideas that society needs to for society to be healthy and for there to be social glue, you have to have social investment because otherwise society crumbles because it eats up all its social capital and actually you, you, you lose the social glue and you just don't have any more trust, not to mention that you have anomie and chaos and what have you. So he ran like that. He became a real problem and he was dealt with accordingly, you know. You know, you can go all Machiavellian or not. It doesn't matter. The fact is that at the end of the day, the anti-status quo message of his was was they wanted to contain it and, and they were successful to contain it. But actually, what that really meant is that people got stuck with the with the Clinton message and the Clinton message didn't really speak to the times. And hence, you know, that's where I believe Hillary Clinton failed. She failed at the level of like, you know, she needed to destroy Bernie Sanders, obviously, because she didn't, you know, she wanted to win, except that she didn't integrate enough of his discourse to kind of like to capture the people that she needed to capture. And hence, you know, that was tragic, you know. Um, on the other side, you have, in a way, the equivalent of Bernie Sanders. You have actually another outsider, in this case, is a billionaire named Donald Trump. And actually, he did in a way a similar move. All of a sudden, he's running as a Republican, except that all the Republicans are scared of this guy because this guy is actually, this guy is like, you know, going off script, so to speak. You know, everybody's like, everything is great. All we need to do is actually lower taxes and, and you know, and, um, and make the government smaller. And this guy comes with a different message. His message is actually, ultimately, that white America is screwed and that... Um, and that global capitalism is actually 
it's 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 using the United States without giving back to the United States and all these multinationals that are American companies and they get protected through American military and what have you and American foreign policy and America's soft and hard power. I actually not not bringing back any of that stuff here. So he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to force those companies to reestablish business in the United States. And the other thing is actually our social infrastructure, our, our, our infrastructure, physical infrastructure is totally destroyed because it's old, because there is no social investment and we're going to invest in roads and in bridges and in dams and in like electric grids and all that stuff. And that's what we're going to do. And then the third point, obviously, was the one about, you know, the nationalist point against migration, you know, immigration. And it's, you know, his message can be taken as super creepy, which is the way it's been taken, or it can be taken in a different way. It can be taken as a very simple economic argument based on the idea of like, we already have high levels of unemployment. Our workers are already like unskilled or de-skilled or whatever you want to call it. We don't need more de-skilled workers. We have plenty. They're sitting at home in all those towns in Nebraska and in Missouri and like in Kansas and everywhere. You know, you find it in, in Ohio, in the Rust Belt, wherever, they're everywhere. And hence, we don't need, you know, to, to, to be blunt, we don't need any more Mexicans. We have a lot of like, you know, we have a lot of Ohioans that need jobs. Um, this got mixed with toxic sentiments and it became what it became. Also, Trump is a, you know, Trump is an entertainer, so he knows how to be a demagogue, you know. I mean, definitely. Um, and hence, you know, all the ugliness, you know, came out. Um, but the fact is that fundamentally his message was that actually things are not okay either. And he tried to build, you know, kind of like a new base for a consensus. It's, it's one according to different, to different parameters. I think one thing that a lot of those nine, 90 million Americans that are feeling left out culturally and socially and economically, I think one thing that they didn't understand is that when Trump claims to make that we're going to make America great again, what it also means is that attracting investment in the United States means that everybody's going to work incredibly hard for incredibly long hours for incredibly low money, because that's the only way that you can sell this as an economically viable alternative. And the fact is that a lot of those very same people that don't have jobs still have a sense of white privilege that actually makes them feel that actually they better remain unemployed than have just some horrible little job, you know, that pays little and makes them work for many hours, you know. And I see it everywhere. I mean, I see it around San Marcos where I live, you know, you, you know, the people that mow the grass, you know, where I live, the landscaping people, they're all Mexican. Every now and then there's a white guy that comes work with those crews. He works for two or three days. And after that, he's the hell with this. I'm not going to work this hard in this sun. I'm not going to do this. No, I, I, I won't. No, no. I, this is for... This is beneath me. So this, is, this is for Mexicans. Yeah, this is for like, this is for infra people, not for real people. And hence, I think there is that disconnect at the level of culture. And you see the disconnect also in, in Occupy Wall Street, right? You know, in the movement of Occupy Wall Street, you have all these educated kids from the East Coast, right? That, you know, studied in like universities in New York or universities in Massachusetts or what have you, or in Connecticut or what have you. Um, and um, they're claiming that 
the social contract of the United States, which was one way based on like the American dream, right? That had been kept for generations now finally broke down all of a sudden. And the way it's described is that all of a sudden the next generation will have to adjust to lower prospects rather than higher prospects, which actually the, 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 the seductiveness of, of the American dream idea was that actually it's, again, it's an idea that it's like typically like a modern, like the modern like the meta-narrative of modernity, better, 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 more right. and more and more, greater, greater, and greater, right? And all of a sudden, it's actually the, what I call the great contraction. All of a sudden, no, it's not going to be greater, it's going to be lesser, and it's not going to be more, it's going to be less, and, and so on and so forth. And instead of better, it's going to be worse. And, um, and as everybody knows, the people that belong to the previous generation have turned this into a conservative, you know, moral majority argument that the millennials that the millennials are a bunch of lazy people and that are a bunch of narcissistic people and that you know that they just simply don't want to work and what have you um and i think that only touches on certain dimensions of the issue i don't i'm not saying that there's that there's absolutely no truth to that but i think there's other elements that are part of the truth and in fact i think they're a bigger part of the truth but be it as it may, what, what, what comes out is that actually the diagnosis that you get out of the Occupy Wall Street people is a diagnosis about, well, about the, to put it in a single slogan, like, you know, bumper sticker, the idea of the 1%, right? And the idea of the 99%. The idea that fundamentally the social contract that we call the American dream is broken because actually the rich people are super rich and the poor people are, are left out. Basically, it's basically corporate greed is what makes us be like this, you know. Um, and again, those, 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 those diagnoses are very seductive because they're like, well, because you can put them in a bumper sticker. But the fact is that as a real diagnosis, they actually are, they really fall way off the mark in the sense that they, you know, there's really, they're terrible simplifications, you know. And, and the fact is that part of the issue really that, that the Occupy Wall Street constituency doesn't want to include in their perspective or like or or or, or overseas is the fact that the world has changed and that the United States road 50 years 60 years of post second world war affluence built on the fact that Europe had been destroyed on the fact that they were able to rebuild Europe through the Martian plan and that the US dollar was used as the currency that was going to substitute for the gold standard. And that gave America, the United States of America, incredible edge for 50, 60, 70 years, you know. And what has happened since then is the fact is that global investment and demographics and the spread of technology has actually made many regions of the world and many populations, non-American populations in the world, develop and come up to speed. So the fact is that the economic edge of America taken overall, like the, the 325 million Americans, it's not, it doesn't have the edge that it used to have. There's actually perfectly capable Indians that can do perfectly capable, uh, you know, research and development work and IT work 
you know, and that they're going to do it for like a third or a quarter of the value that an American worker is willing to do it for. There's actually Malaysians that can make clothes, you know, as well as the Americans, but for a fraction of the price. And hence, you know, the fact is that in a way, I feel a little bit sad about the Occupy Wall Street people because I feel it's a little bit about this, the, the Rip Van Winkle syndrome. These people went to sleep, woke up, the world changed, and they actually... I understand that they're trying to point the finger at somebody because, I mean, it makes sense, you know, in a way like the redneck scapegoat, the Mexicans, you know, the white educated kids, well, they, 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 you know, they chastise, you know, the 1%, right? But I think, I, I think both groups actually really m misread the situation in some really fundamental ways, you know, and yeah, it's not that there's not economic inequality, but furthermore, what you really have is a whole world that has come to age, up to age in the world of capitalism. And there are actually a lot of players, both at the level of labor and at the level of like, you know, at the level of simply, um, you know, consumer markets and at the level of simply like, you know, technological infrastructure. The idea that America can do it best is just becoming less, less true. Yeah, America can still do best. When you get to the very top of the vanguard of this global movement, America still does it best. But that can only give work to 10% of the population. The super intelligent and the super talented, the super driven and the super educated and the super rich. But, you know, the dude that, again, the dude that is in the Maraska is not like any of those people. It's simply just the reality of it. Um, I mean, compounding the issue, you have also the fact that the Opikai Wall Streeters, like everybody else, like the guy in Nebraska too, right? They want to have high-paying jobs, right? So... In their identity as a prospective worker, they want to have high salaries, except that we're in a global war labor market that actually probably will only give you a low salary if you want to be competitive in the global market, you know. But on the other side, on his identity or her identity as a consumer, they still want to go to Walmart and buy a fan, a window fan for 20 bucks, you know. Right. And all of a sudden, if you would tell him no, now the fan is going to cost you 60 or 80 because now it's built in America at the price that you want to pay. I mean, the, the price that, I mean, at the, you know, at the, built, wage at, that the, the wages that you want to have. Well, then the fan, it's a zero sum game. Then the fan is going to cost not 20, but it's going to cost 80. And then they're going to be like, uh, I don't want to pay 80. And I'm like, well, you need to grow up then because you need to choose what is it, what you really want, you know? I mean, I understand that what you really would like is actually to wake up 30 years later and for the world to be like it was 30 years before. Sure, that would be wonderful. Except that For the, certain people. Right, except that the world won't really, you know, you know, and then in the end, what it comes across, I mean, it's very good that you said that because in the end, what it comes across is actually, to again, to use identity politics terminology, it comes across as actually a new kind of like pseudo-enlightened white privilege. It's like, oh my God, I'm not special. I'm like, no, you're not special anymore i mean everybody's special we're all human beings and that's wonderful but you're not special in the way that we were special right in terms of economic value you just mm. aren't the, you're not providing the value for the system yeah that they can extract from elsewhere yeah 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 so that's how i see the the, the battle lines i mean and, and 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 the fact is that i mean there's also obviously what's really happening right now which is actually you know 
you know, a whole kind of like political cannibalism, right? So like, you know, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are both killing each other and like, you know, everybody's like, you know, killing Trump and, you know, and in fact, everybody's even killing Hillary Clinton anyway. <laughs> Still, right? you know, uh -huh. <laughs> so everybody's killing everybody anyway, except that the issues that are being talked about on the 24 hour news cycle has nothing to do with with the reality of reality. So we're talking about you know, the wacky like Russian dossiers and like, you know, the secret conversations between Trump Jr. and like, you know, and Julian Assange, you know, you know, we we went like we went to talk about some really crazy stuff when in fact the real problems that we have are still left undealt with, you know, like the fact that you still have 90 million Americans without jobs, the fact that you, um, you know, do you have a, a, a physical infrastructure in the country that is crumbling? I mean, the idea that Trump was going to establish a big program of public works, like the one that FDR established in the United States in the 30s or 40s, that's, you know, we everybody already forgot about that, you know. <laughs> you know, now we're just busy with the usual Washington politics that are really about nothing. And in the meantime, well, while the people in Washington are talking about the Russians and like, you know, if, if Hillary Clinton has Alzheimer's or whatever, you know, in the meantime, the stock market couldn't be doing any better. And in a way, it reminds me of like, it reminds me of like the, you know, the Arab countries where, you know, they all sit on all this oil and they have these oil families that are incredibly rich. And the population, which is very young, and, and, and there's a demographic explosion in the Arabic countries, all these young disenfranchised people are being told that the whole problem of their lives is actually the fact that American women wear bathing suits, you know, bikinis, or like the problem is America's sexuality or the problem is capitalism or, you know, you know, lacks values or whatever, you know. Um, when in fact, I think most people would claim that the problem is that actually that they have corrupt, you know, royal families that basically eat all the money, do no social investment, and actually the people have absolutely no future. But no, we claim that the problem is that there's Christianism and that Christianism, Christians don't believe in Allah, you know, which is rubbish. But it's not, not more or less rubbish than, than, than the way we, di you know, the diversion that we have in the United States, that instead of talking about the real problems, we're talking about some Russian dossier or Oh, we talk about the fact is that you don't respect the fact that I'm a transsexual, you know, it's kind of like, you know, those are sideshows, you know, to claim that the problem of an Arab youth is that actually its own activities that are happening in a country that is 15,000 miles away is simply ludicrous, you know, straight up, you know, um, they have much more immediate problems that have to do with like Arab society and, you know, you know, the way the way those societies played out. But it's typical, it's a typical way of like a, a diversion tactic, you know, you know, when your population is, it's, it's, um, it's experiencing anxiety or unrest, you have two ways of going about it, which are kind of variations of the same theme. One is actually scapegoating, scapegoating. The problem is the Jewish people or whatever. And the other one is actually pointing to a problem, but it's like super far away. And then you keep yourself busy on, on that thing, you know, way out there, way, way, way out. I think it might be helpful, and I wanted, wanted to go back to sort of the Enlightenment impact on 
because I think it plays a role definitely in, in shaping this current milieu that we're in. And that someone like an enlightenment philosopher like John Locke is someone who very much influenced people like Jefferson and Madison and notions of, uh, you know, democracy and private property and so forth that I think, you know, obviously that shaped the fabric of America and ties into this whole and America being the preeminent capitalist nation and so forth carries forward. And so I think it's good to at least to ground some of that discussion there. But that's just sort of a footnote. But I, I do think to your point about the um, sort of the Arab world and and what have you is that the U.S. intervention there and the pursuit of oil, which has been, you know, the primary commodity driving global globalization. I mean, I think that there there's certainly some blood on the hands of the United States and in interfering with those regions and <clears throat> and so forth as well. And I don't know if you were necessarily bypassing that or, or whatever. Could you kind of clarify what your what your point was? No, I mean obviously the um, the United States can be demonized in the Arab world because since oil was discovered out there, um, you know, a hundred years ago or whatever, more than a hundred years ago, um, we've made it our business to be there, making it our business. Um, but the fact is that long, 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 long time ago, you know, a certain subset, very small subset of Arab families got themselves a deal with the United States and, and I'm sure also some European powers oh, absolutely. to to be kind of like in collusion of, you know, they're like you know they're like the you know they're like the um they're like the middlemen right out there yeah absolutely you know and hence you know and that's that adds to the whole not only the irony but the hypocrisy of the whole thing the fact is that you know the royal families of saudi arabia are incredibly powerful and don't really share their wealth with you know the normal average Arab person um, and they are ultimately their ultimate allegiance is actually with, with the global capitalist rich be it in Hong Kong or be it in the United States in Texas or in like Paris or whatever or in London in fact a lot of those people have houses in fact most of the most expensive neighborhoods of London have been bought by those Arab people in fact a lot of like Londoners are really pissed off that all the old historic neighborhoods where all the rich Londoners used to live are all now Arabic or actually or actually they're people from the former Soviet Soviet republics, you know. Um and hence, you know, all the global rich live there. Um so but then on the other hand, like the very same people that actually ultimately have a loyalty to the United States at the level of like the stakeholders, you know of the status quo of how this thing works and the riches and whatever, they also then establish, you know, they establish, you know, schools to spread, you know, you know, ideas about jihad. The Wahhabis. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so it's, it's a real mess, you know, and in a way I find it also disingenuous because the fact is that what's really going on is that, one of the way that those Arab families keep their power is actually precisely by, by 
by creating these sideshows right. that remind the United States that they can create a lot of mayhem if they want. You know, you don't simply want to be a middleman that sits there on top of the oil and watches it and pumps it out for you. You know, because you know, you know that's not gonna that's not gonna be enough for you. You need to add other other components to it. I mean, and I don't think why one can speak in Machiavellian terms. It's not that these people sit on a chair and think about this. This is not like a conspiracy theory. But I'm saying that these forces end up playing out in these ways, you know, and that they're messy. And that the fact is that I can be your first collaborator and I might want to get back, backstab you all at once. And that that's just simply the way of the world, you know. And I think it's more it's it's more like that, you know. Um, I mean, all these Arab countries could be building infrastructure, they could be building schools, and they could be building, you know, you know, technology. But no, what they do is what all the rich empires have always done. They actually live of rent. They just take funny money that comes from mm -hmm. somewhere, and they spend it in goodies, never really thinking about the future. It happened to Spain. Spain went to, you know, the New World, found gold, went nuts, and went on a spending spree for 300 years. And then came out on the other side, a medieval country, and all their wealth was actually transferred first to Holland and then to England. And actually, Spain made England rich and also made England industrialized. And then all of a sudden, you get to like the 19th or the 20th century, and Spain is still stuck in the Middle Ages. Why? Because they could afford it. They could be stuck in the Middle Ages because they could buy all the items of industry. They could just buy them with oil. They didn't have to figure out how to do this or how to do that right. or how to do that. They simply... Just buy it, you know. Um, but but I want to go back to the other point that you mentioned because I think it's important and I think it's a good way to kind of like making the picture more complete, you know. There are two things that you mentioned and I think they're both important. I'm going to go in reverse, so to speak, because um, I find it just easier. Um, When you go to the birth of the United States as a nation, let's suppose the time after the after the revolution, um, one of the typical historical narratives that 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 are upheld at the moment about that particular time is that in a way there were two competing notions of what this country was going to be about, and one is what we call the Jeffersonian agrarian republic notion, and the other one is what is called the Hamiltonian. Atlantic Empire, you know, I mean, it's it's there are very good reasons why Hamilton and Jefferson would propose and promote different um, visions. I mean, you know, one reason is that, you know, Jefferson belonged to an old family from Virginia. He was a slave owner. He had a bunch of land. He was an eccentric and he liked to live this Renaissance life of like, you know, growing cabbages and like looking through a telescope and like <laughs> making experiments and writing literature right and, and running a country reading john locke for eight hours a day yeah <laughs> you know uses a bunch of stuff like that i mean monticello was bank you know he bankrupted monticello by the time he was dead or old anyway but you know he had this idea that that was the way this that was the utopian model that he was pursuing and um you know and um and it was one that came together with an idea of simply landed gentry privilege, you know, um, you know, and hence you're going to have 
in that regard, it, it makes sense that you would put forward a view of that nature because it agreed with just simply the life that you're already living, kind of. But the same thing can be said about, about Hamilton. I mean, Hamilton was born in, like, you know, Bermuda or Barbados, um, and um, he was the product of an illegitimate relation between a woman that, by all accounts, appears to be somebody that was a prostitute. Um, he made it to the United States um, as, a young, as a young man, having been raised in the Caribbean, which is an area that was kind of like full of like, you know, you know, black marketeering and bootlegging and all sorts of hustling, you know, and, and a world of kind of like a certain level of like entrepreneurial illegality. Um, he got to New York with nothing. New York was a place that was actually had been a had been a Dutch colony of commerce. And that's why New York still has the temperament and the culture that it has in place. It was not a Puritan place based on the idea of the New Jerusalem or whatever. This was a place for hustling of a country that was had been very impoverished and had made a living out of commerce and banking and insurance. I mean, the Netherlands. And hence, like, New York City was built in that spirit. So for a place, an individual like Hamilton, a very talented fellow, but with absolutely no life prospects, it was a place to go. I mean, it was a place to make his mark, right? Um... It's a total like non-traditional, non you know, non non-conservative type of life or lifestyle, you know. And it got in place. He was the first secretary of the treasury. He was the one that suggested that we should build, you know, the capital in New York, you know. And they even tried that out for a while, and they they decided that actually that that New York had too much of a corrupt corrupt influence, and that you shouldn't have business interests and political interests so close together. And hence, they actually moved the city to another place so that you could separate politics. And the idea was to separate politics and money. Um, but the, um, the Hamiltonian vision was always a vision of America looking towards the Atlantic, looking towards Europe, both for like, for like materials in Africa and whatever, and in the Caribbean and in South America, but also actually towards Europe. You know, he thought that, you know, we should still, you know, we should establish ourselves a, a, interna a transatlantic, you know, relationship with Europeans now as equals. Um, Jefferson had a different idea. Jefferson actually was the, had the idea of actually the expansion westward, right? The westward expansion. We're going to build this country not by facing Europe, but by actually moving across the country, you know. And he sent Lewis and Clark and whatever. He did all those things that he did. Um and so you have this idea that America is this yeoman republic of this individualistic people that are self-reliant, that are well, going to build a self-reliant life in this new territory that gives him like a new chance of starting life, a new, a new, a new beginning to history. And that, and that the country makes it possible for people to live a truly individualistic life based on freedom. And it's based on the Lockean ideas of like the freedom is going to be built on actually on, on, on liberty as understood as non-intervention and secondly you know a protection of like liberty by the rule of law sorry the protection of freedom sorry the protection of life and liberty by the rule of law and finally you know the protection of the right to property because with property you can actually have the possibility of of the exercise of freedom um and hence you know he went at it in the end, 
a lot of people, I guess, would claim that what has really happened now, that you know, once we get to the 21st century, is that in a way the Hamiltonian idea was the one that really triumphed at the end of the line. You know, um, the average American is an individual that lives a life of rent, not a life of ownership. You know, people rent the places where they live, and also they live of credit. You know, and that's the life that we live. Um, which is very far away from like the Lockean idea of liberalism and also the idea that Adam Smith and, and, and David Hume and people like that had about actually, you know, um, laissez-faire capitalism or whatever. Um, interestingly enough, you know, both the Democrats and the Republicans, according to different modalities, they are defending, they, they still defend the ideas of liberty and they still defend the ideas of a, of a free market. You know, um, they defend them in different ways. I mean, in the case of the Democrats, they defend the idea, but with the caveat that we should also then provide for a certain level of protection of some basic social goods that are owed to everybody just because they're citizens of this country, you know, our rights of citizenship, so to speak. And that the capitalist system seems to provide, create a certain levels of certain level of inequality that needs to be redressed somehow. And the Republicans go at it differently. The Republicans try to stick to like, at least to the letter of the Lokian view, which has been reinstated by a lot of different economic thinkers ever since the latest iteration is, you know, during the 20th century, people like, you know, um, like, you know, the Austrian economic thinkers like von Mises and Hayek, you know, but they're all really hearkening back to the to the original idea in a way they are in a way for lack of a better term they're purists and that they say that the problem with capitalism is that it move away from its from its purity and that begot like the the rhetoric of the neoliberal push that was behind what we all call like the last 20 years of globalization i mean the world has always been global like you know know, hundreds of years certainly but what has happened lately is just a new stage of that where basically by using technology, you've been able to liberate capital flows. And hence, you know, multinational corporations have been able to, to move their investments in ways that are way more agile. And, um, and they then hence being able to exploit markets that they were never able to exploit before with a level of agility that stays always several steps ahead of any political or social movement. Right, you know? absolutely. And also it capitalizes on the fact that actually more and more and more it claims for itself greater and greater liberties of capital flow and investment flows. But at the same time, it makes sure that more and more and more you have actually more and more restrictions to labor flows. Right. So, so actually yeah. people get stuck in territories in, in a world of physics, of space-time, while actually the money becomes more and more abstract as a, as, a, as, as a unit and also moves across all sorts of dimensions, up, down, east, west, anyway. At the speed of light. At the speed of life 24-7, because right. it doesn't sleep. Um, and, and hence, you know, that creates problems for simply, like, you know, f- f- fighting the power, so to speak. Because the fact is that, as you can see... Uh, you have a, a you have an inequality here in, in in powers and in potentials. One can move across borders and it moves at the speed of light, and it moves as an abstraction. The other one is stuck in like you know 
in like real time and stuck in territories and if you try to move you will be killed or you will be in prison or whatever right. a bunch of stuff so creating creating um a counterforce to to global capital is incredibly difficult because capital is super huge and super fast and super elusive and adaptive I and adaptive most... and people are simply super slow and super like bound by biology and just stuck in a place you know? right and i think even bound further by culture yeah sure and i think we can start take the postmodern turn into how that shapes things too mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. so so you got yourself that's exhibit a in this regard and exhibit b which is also part of that picture is that the fact is that global capitalism and neoliberalism the way that is lived in in all the countries it's not one that operates according to the principles of john locke or according to the principles of like on mises or, or hayek it just simply isn't it's actually just a particular kind of subsidized capitalism in in the lockean idea and just like in the von mises and hayek's idea the fact is that the system worked because the system was based on freedom of action, but that freedom of action also came with a concomitant um, repercussion of that action. So, for example, the idea, one of the ideas, for example, is that actually that a claim for profit and a claim for profit making is a legitimate claim because the individual that uses his creativity, his industry and his like capacity to embrace risk should be able to be remunerated by a profit that is connected to the level of risk that that individual was willing to undertake in a way it's actually you need to pay for play you know and hence if you're willing to risk it then you should be able to reap the profits and in a way in many in many economic transactions there is supposed to be a connection between the level of risk that you're willing how much you're willing to lose is going to be connected to what ex would be a legitimate expectation of gain right you know that's just simply how it works and that's how you develop new industries by people that are willing to take incredible risks right and so just to i guess to distill that to a real world example so if i my amount of risk in going to an employer and getting a job like i'm i'm not risking anything because if the business fails then i can just go get another job and i'm may not necessarily be out whereas if the business fails the capitalist is out a huge amount of a huge sum of money. Yeah, that and is so it. the vice versa, they deserve a greater share of the rewards, even though you're producing a certain amount. That is exactly right. But what you really end up seeing is that the way the system works in reality is very different. And you see it very clearly with the, like the financial market collapse that have been going on for the past whatever, certainly for the past like 30 years, you know, they actually follow a logic where these people play very risky games and then when the system collapses the citizenry pays the price by by in the shape of bailouts you know and the bailouts take a lot of different forms but ultimately all the forms involved massive um you know massive hits taken by the average citizen in the shape of like austerity programs or in the shape of taxation or in the shape of like you know um higher prices or in the price or in the shape of like you know lower quality of life for like a decade or whatever um and hence and hence you know it is a system 
that doesn't operate according to the logic of checks and balances that was built into its own logic, which actually I have to say the logic has something really persuasive and beautiful about it. Because the fact is that by this system of action reaction, you get information. And then that information will reshape your future actions and hence the system can self-regulate. That was the idea of, of the invisible hand. Right. That by you and I making decisions and then gauging what were the consequences, then we're going to like calibrate you and me both. And, and then it, it, it just maps out, maps out to, at the level of the system. Nobody, no player could understand the whole system, but right. the system is an is still an intelligent right. system. There's some emergent behavior. Mm -hmm. There is an emergent behavior. Or yes. a wisdom of crowd. Yes. That's not the exact. No, but emergent behavior is really the better word. Okay. And, um, and, and hence what you, what you see in this, in this, in this case is that now these people are not being able to learn from that action, the message that they were supposed to learn, which is actually that you, you fail, you take the hit. It's actually, if you fail, you won't have to take the hit. Society will take the hit for you. And hence, what you end up is actually building a world that has incredible economic distortions and that actually has individuals that as a group, not as individuals, but as a group, are treated, with, are treated in, in the old ideas and the old ways of privilege. And privilege, you could use different words for it, but in the end, privilege means that you get something out of nothing, you know. And in the end, and it might very well be that not, er, not any single individual is treated with the privilege, but the group, the, right. the, the, you know, that, that group of people as a group is, it's allowed to operate as a group under rules of engagement that actually already belie a kind of privilege. Right. That's not the only one. Farmers, for example, in the United States, you know, they operate according to high levels of subsidy. So you, in a way... It does a lot of things, but one of the things that it does is that it actually um, allows for certain people to, it allowed for the emergence of agribusiness. It allowed for people to keep making their farms bigger and bigger and bigger because there was an incentive towards that. And you could actually get yourself, you know, government subsidies that basically incentivize largeness. And, you know, there's like, as you know, I'm sure there's this thing called Farm Aid, this, this concert that they, they, they have every X number of years. It was started by Willie Nelson, but it also includes people like John Mellencamp and Neil Young and other people. They actually are always talking about the plight of the small farmer. And the plight of the small farmer is not only the plight of the small farmer, the plight of the small farmer is the plight of actually rural life in the United States that got completely destroyed. And all that you have in rural life in the United States at the moment is actually, you know, a lot of crystal meth, you know, and a lot of like, you know, a lot of, a lot of fundamentalist Christianity and porn, you know, it's, it's, it's a word that was substituted by that, which basically it's just a dysfunctional world where there are no, there are no opportunities for those people. And hence, you know, what you really realize is that in the United States, a lot of like, or for example, a multinational establishes a business operation somewhere, let's suppose somewhere in Asia. Well, a lot of times those things are mediated by actually by Washington politicians that basically open doors for those people. Right. And also by the U.S. military, which goes to these places and kind of like makes them makes them user friendly for them. And, and hence what you can really see then here is that the fact is that at the end of the day, you know, the capitalist system in the United States, when you look at the winners... The winners are not playing according to the logic that Adam Smith or Hayek were talking about. 
they're playing actually according to a type of subsidy. In a way, it looks very similar to the subsidy that we have for the poor. The way the poor also, if you want to be really hardline, the poor also are not operating in a Lokian world. They're not trying to wake up in the morning and try to sell you like Slurpees or whatever, like, you know, or sh shine your shoes or whatever. No, they decide that, you know, they do a cost benefit analysis and they say, no, whatever. I'm just going to like chill and try to collect checks or whatever or hustle, you know. Um, so a lot of people then say, well, you know, you are getting an inordinate amount of, of, of the social wealth that, that, that this population generates without putting in the effort to, to get it. On the other end of the spectrum, the super rich, in a way, are in a similar situation in which, you know, they, they operate as rich people, but they actually don't have to fully carry the consequences of the activities that they're undertaking. Maybe on this side, they actually are not undertaking any activities and then they get remunerated. And in this other side, they actually are undertaking activities, except that they don't have to pay the full price of the consequences of those activities. And both are distortions and, 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 and displacements away from like what, what the ideal that Locke and that Hayek were, were putting forward. And for example, I have no problem embracing a truly capitalist system that is really built on an economic dynamic that is not full of these distortions. In fact, I think it would be very, very healthy, except that that's just not the world that we're living. And in right. fact, that's not even the world that the Republicans, just to speak about a particular group, that the Republicans want to live. They speak with that rhetoric, but behind the rhetoric is just simply the old boys network, which is basically a network of privilege and subsidy. Well, I mean, I think it's important to point out, too, maybe from a like the post-colonial critique of that is that even so myself, I mean, you know, if you put me in context of world wealth, you know, I'm maybe in the top 4%, even though I may I might have no, you know, I don't own anything, but I still benefit from the global system of capitalism and exploiting and extracting resources from poorer areas. And so I benefit from that. So it's in many ways to go back to the Wall Street, you know, the uh, Occupy mm -hmm. Wall Street, it's kind of like, well, these spoiled, uh, spoiled people are kind of crying foul when it really, the real people that are getting exploited are the, you know, the global, you know, the global South, so to speak. I mean, and, and, and that reminds me of like, you know, the arguments that, that the African-American or at least a subset of the African-American community make about reparations. I mean, the Occupy Wall Street people could talk about the 1%, right, which is they do. But they could also equally talk about the fact that the other 99%, just like the 1%, have also benefited for actually literally centuries from like a, 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 a an unfair redistribution of wealth from like the global south, to, to give it a name, right. and, and, and the north. And the fact is that if you really want to be all about redistribution, then we have to be making like massive reparations towards the global south that go back to maybe yeah. fi at least five, five years. yeah at least certainly 500 years of like you know of extractive behaviors you know and these extractive behaviors were not built according to you know um agreements that were made in any way shape or form according to classical liberal views about the rule of law or about the protection of basic rights these were made 
It's agreements. If you even want to call them agreements, were made by the threat of the barrel of the gun. Absolutely. You know, and hence, you know, and, and the United States too. I mean, obviously, we want to talk about, in, you know, the reparations towards the Native Americans, you know, or, you know, one way of looking at it from a Lokian point of view is that actually these people actually own this place and we're doing their thing and we just came in this you place. And took I it. mean, <laughs> and the argument is more complicated than that because actually, you know, the way the right to property that that Locke was talking about was one that you actually have a right to the amount of land and resources that you can actually blend your labor with and make it your own. So you cannot, as a Native American or as a nobody, as a, as a, as a new European settler, you cannot claim more property than the one that you yourself can actually work. And hence, there's always a cap to that. So in a way, in the Lokian world, the the Native American genocide First of all, they didn't have to happen. And secondly, you know, the the Native Americans cannot claim also what they were claiming, which is actually rights to insane amounts of land, because from the point of view of the Lockean perspective, they uh, could okay. only claim enough land. Also, Locke said that you need to leave you need to leave enough for the rest, so to speak. So yeah, you might want to claim all the southern Rockies for your tribe, but the fact is from the Lokian point of view, you can only claim the little bit that you need for grazing or for whatever your economic your economic system is, you know. Interesting. And and hence, you know, and, and but but certainly, yeah, you're totally right. You know, you and I are sitting on simply a social capital that it's the result of like massive appropriation of resources. I was I was talking in one of my classes yesterday that in the past 200 years, certainly, the world has been eating away at the carbon capital that took literally millions of year, years to, to, to build up. Right. And we've just been simply eating, eating at the capital. I mean, because the fact is that, you know, you cannot make n new carbon capital very quickly. It takes literally thousands of years, you know. Um, so we've been eating at the principle for 200 years. We've been binging on this thing. We call it oil or we call it methane or we call it like natural gas or whatever. It comes in different forms. But still, it's a repository of capital that took millions of years to build. And we'd be just eating it away like, like it's nothing based on, uh, on capitalist contractual agreements that, that establish rights of extraction that are not connected to any perspective that would consider any of these things that I'm talking about. But I would say that in the past 50 years, we've been eating on another, on the system, the capitalist system in this case, has been eating on another capital that we've taken for granted, which is this one that we're talking about, which is social capital. You know, this country became what it became by massive amounts of social investment of people that make great sacrifices and stuck it out in situations that they didn't, didn't like to create not only a type of infrastructure that we take for granted, but also create a type of social glue between real relationships among neighbors and people that are that are living in areas, you know. But now we actually eliminated any regard for any of those things. And all that we have left behind is actually market and market relations. So we actually have completely plundered the human relationships that existed before, except that we piggy wrote on them until now. Right. You know. And, and we didn't reinvest in them. What we decided is actually to re-describe them as simply market relations. So there are no neighbors. Now you call now you call some person that you pay them 20 bucks an hour so that they can act like your neighbor for two days and help you out with something. You know, you don't have your grandma or your aunt 
taking care of your child, what you do is you get a, you know, you get a Honduran nanny that comes and works, works at your place. So what we've done is that we've replaced real human relationships embedded in real society and that produce real social capital that actually accrues through generations and they build stronger societies, more resilient societies, and also simply societies that actually have really strong social glue. And we'd be just eating away at it without any regard that at some point there won't be any robustness to it, any resilience to it, and actually that all the social glue would disappear and what we will live is in a landscape that is despoiled and a landscape where human beings have absolutely no trust between each other. Right. And I think that actually we're very close to that already. And the way it's showing is actually on the right-wing paranoia about like, you know, xenophobia and all this stuff. And then the, the left-wing paranoia of PC and identity politics. That paranoia, I think more than anything else, is based on the fact that we ate already. We ate all our social capital. There's no social glue left. And, and when there's no social glue left and also the market is not really allowing you to, to claim what you thought it was going to allow you to claim, which was actually the American dream. Because at the end of the day, you could say, look, the American dream might have all these other components, but forget about them. The American dream can just simply be good enough by being like, the American dream is about everybody has a chance of getting super loaded. And I don't care. Maybe my neighbors are jerk and I don't even know who they are. But at least if the American dream can keep the element of like, I'm going to get freaking loaded, at least it's a silver lining. You know, all the neighbors are jerk, but we're all super rich. That's cool. You know, I can live with that and I'll buy myself friends and I'll buy myself family and I'll buy myself like my people, so to speak. I'll have my entourage, which act like friends, except that are just on my pay payroll, so to speak. But no, social capital got got it out, but also the market is not delivering on its promise only for a very small group of people. And everybody else was now left without without the prospects of riches, but also without the other consolation of life, which is actually that you have a place that you can call home and you have a group of people that right. are your people and that you have, basically what, what most third world country people have, which are not rich, but they have like, what do we call like we have, they have their cousins and they have like, you know, they sit around and barbecue and chill and they, they, they've been living in the same valley for 500 years. We don't have any of that either. Right. And hence we, and then, and hence people are freaked out for good reasons, right? So what they do is they go into the argument about xenophobia or the problem is that women don't want to be proper women anymore or whatever, you know, this hearkening back to like an illusion about how life used to be. Or you get the other side, you get the PC paranoia where actually, you know, like the gender is paranoid, the ethnos are paranoid, you know, everybody's paranoid about everybody and everybody's trying to keep everybody on check. Except that out of none of that, none of that will create the solution to the problem. None of it. It's actually kind of like an, an intellectualization of the problem, you know. I think that's interesting. It brings to mind two points. Um, the first being, I think that conservatives don't, you know, I find that conservative complaints about what's happening in contemporary society they their critique is never systemic it's never on material conditions that ca that create human behavior it's always individuals acting like the individual has you know what i mean it's, there's like this idealist version of the individual that they kind of base their critique on and they don't realize the structures and things like that that shape humanity itself and i'd like to actually go i think that's a good way to segue it back around to postmodernism again 
But uh, just to interject one other point, I think that there's been a lot of, I guess, the anarchist strains of thought where, you know, their critique was a little bit different from Marx in that, you know, Marx was kind of stating, you know, these the capitalists are extracting this surplus value. The anarchists were saying that we all, as a human race, we all own the planet collectively. All of the work that has been laid down before us, we are all inheritors of that same legacy. And it seems like the capitalist market approach has been to wall off the commons. And so I'll give you an example of this critique that I'd like to use is, uh, I would say if, if Isaac Newton had been calculus today, there would be a license. You would have to pay a license to use calculus versus the way that it happened. You know, it just happened so long ago before global capitalism was a thing. And now we all build upon that. So the society we have today and the technology and everything that is related in, it has a historical relation to previous modes. Let me interject there about, about that case, because I find it, I find it's an interesting one. And there's an, there's another example that might be illuminating in, 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 in and add one component to it you know a lot of pharmaceutical companies go for example to the amazon they send ethnobotanists down there and what they do is they go to these areas in the middle of nowhere where they're actually like native people and those native people throughout literally experimenting through thousands of years have acquired an insane amount of local knowledge about the stuff that's there all the plants and what have you and in a way these are their discoveries. These are like their calculus, so to speak. And what they do is they go down there and they actually take these plants, they actually sequence the DNA and they patent it, you know, and they patent those chemicals. And in a way, they actually appropriate. In fact, they actually violate what would, in modern times would be considered copyright laws or intellectual <laughs> laws. So some shaman or whatever, I mean, it doesn't even have to be a shaman. I mean, but a lot of that stuff is just common knowledge of the people there. They, but it is actually a common knowledge that came out of discoveries that took years or maybe even generations sometimes to like ascertain. And now these things are, in, are, are basically, you know, snatched and they're, they've been created proper proprietary rights. And actually they're companies that make insane amounts of money. And if you're really unlucky, do you, as an indigenous person, you end up in an even worse place because actually not only they steal your quote unquote invention, but in the end, actually, by stealing it and, 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 and creating a copyright, actually, you might end up in the worst case, in the worst case scenario, you might end up in a situation that now you cannot even afford to use the invention that you invented right. because actually now it's owned by somebody that is going to actually ask for money for you to actually <laughs> use it. So they steal it. And then when you try to use it, they claim that you're stealing from them, so to speak. And hence, that's the ultimate perversion in, in, in that particular scenario, you know, but, you know, obviously one way to get out of that predicament is actually to, yeah, to talk about the commons and to talk about externalities, which a system it refuses to engage with, with neither of the two, you know. Um, you know, I always think that the anarchists are kind of like the left-wing version of the libertarians, you know. Oh, absolutely. So they're both at the opposite end of the spectrums, except that the opposite end of the spectrums are kind of like touching each other on the back of each kind other. Kind of like the horseshoe, horseshoe yeah. theory, they yeah. call it. Uh-huh. And, and hence, you know, these people, in a way, both dislike, you know, 
you know, mediating structures. The hierarchy. Yeah, the hierarchy of mediating structures. You can call them the state or the nation state, but you don't even have to call them anything. You can call them simply mediating structures. And what they both, their basic claim is that actually that society would do better without those mediating structures. I mean, that's really ultimately the argument. And I think what differs between the two of them is that actually it's kind of like the relationship between the individual and like and the commons, number one, and secondly, the structure of the self. You know, in the anarchists, the self is an expansive self where actually you and I are bound by our humanity and I'm cool with you and you're cool with me and, and we kind of like try to work together in a cooperative way, you know. In the libertarian model, you and I share in a universality, but you and I actually are not going to cooperate. We're just going to leave each other alone and respect our aloneness and if anything... If we need to inter, you know, interact with each other, we're going to inter, interact with each other in a type of competitive framework, you know, and hence, you know, the logic of, of that interaction is going to be a different one. Um, I mean, a lot of people claim that, you know, that the anarchist picture is, is just one that is just simply, um, is simply too idealistic and that, um, that the average human being because, you know, you can have a theory that looks really good in theory, right. you know, but in reality, there's only like, you know, 10% of the human phenotype that can really kind of like handle living like that, so to speak. No different from, for example, there's like, you know, in mathematics, there's actually topology and number theory and like calculus three, which, yeah, they're human creations, except that only a very small percentage of human beings can even understand what that stuff is about. So, yeah, it's a theory created by a human but it's not for all humans, you know? Right. I mean, I think that, yeah. From, a, from an ideal standpoint, I think you would call my political ph philosophy libertarian socialism, mm -hmm. in which I think libertarianism was kind of sort of co-opted from the anarchists, actually, in the European tradition. And they took it and kind of put their own spin on it. But I think from a philosoph... And I haven't been able to sort of, I guess, it's sort of like the difference between... Um, connecting your um, or connecting like general relativity with quantum theory you know what I mean there's mm -hmm. like a gap there because philosophically um, like I said in this sort of introduction I think that a lot of what postmodernism the points that it makes or the arguments or it's really I guess it's critique of modernism and the enlightenment rings so true to me but I don't know how to how do you bridge that gap how do you overcome Relativ relativism and nihilism like mm -hmm. that's the struggle mm -hmm. is to bridge that gap i mean i think in the 21st century one of the good places to try to like um to try to use to bootstrap oneself out of that relative's hole is to refer to the fact that you know to a type of materialism the fact that actually we are creatures that operate in a type of space-time dimension and that that dimension comes with possibilities but also with limits. And in the case of humans, I think one of the things that helps us get out of like a, a, a particular kind of relativism about a particular set of things is just simply the issue of sustainability, the issue that we actually need to survive as physical beings in a system that is kind of like fundamentally a closed system 
and that um, and that we needed to we need to make it work out for us going into the future. I mean, we can get all nihilist and say like, yeah, well, whatever. I don't care about the future. I just want to live now and like the future. If there's no more for the people in the future world, then the hell for them. You can always play that card. I mean, it's a it's a, it's a rational move. I mean, it's a mental move. But if you don't want to go down that path, the fact is that once you acknowledge that human beings are fundamentally stuck on planet Earth and that human beings actually are physical creatures and that planet Earth operates as a, as a closed system fundamentally. Yeah, there's energy coming from the sun, but, you know, that's, you know, that, that, extra, that extra input, you know, gets, gets integrated into the system very, very slowly, um, you know, beyond solar energy, you know, like that can be trapped, so to speak. Um, and hence, you know, the issue of sustainability, then it's going to eliminate a lot of possibilities. Or it's going to at least select against them, you know, because they won't be conducive to, to, to survival, for lack of a better term, you know. And, and hence, you know, that's one way of getting out of it. The, the second way of dealing with relativism is the fact that the fact that there is different ways of doing things or different ways of looking at things doesn't mean that all these ways are equally good or Certainly. equally good for what we're trying to achieve. Right. So, I mean, and sure, somebody might, you have a constitutional right, you know, in this country to just believe any kind of crazy thing you want to believe. So if, if, if you would like to believe like right now that two plus two equals five, you literally have a constitutional right to believe that. But beyond beyond that trivial point that you can believe any crazy thing you want, the fact is that in many cases, when people start throwing the term relativism, what it merely means for them is actually code word for the type of like lazy, infantile emotivism, you know, where basically you just simply feel in one way, you don't really want to think through it. So you just keep saying, well, I just think like that, you know, right. whatever. this is my way, you know. Whereas, in fact, if you start digging, what you really realize is that whatever they think is a particular perspective that is a perspective about something. And once it is a particular perspective that's about a particular something, then you can ask the questions, well, what is it that you get from this perspective? And what are the implicit values? And what are the goals that you're trying to achieve? And is this the best way to achieve those goals? Or are they other goals? You might still end up to a place at a place after the analysis that you realize that there are actually three different ways of getting kind of to the same place. And that in the end, it's really literally a matter of choice, which was this three you're going to use. It's kind of like when you and I say, oh, I want to go to like, you know, I want to go to Round Rock and I want to go at like, you know, five in the afternoon, which way I should go. And you're like, man, you know, there are like a lot of <laughs> bad ways. Yeah, there are a lot of bad ways of going there. You could go this way or this way or this way. And then you would be like, this way is quicker. Uh -huh. It, this way is shorter, but it's going to take you the same as this one that is longer because actually it's the same, you know. Right. Um, and hence, you know, you get your, or like if you, if you hate lights, traffic lights, don't use this one. But if you don't mind, then you can use that one. But that one is going to have this other problem. And, and hence, you just get to yourself to this kind of like zero sum kind of places. But, you know, but I think relativism is given way more power and way more credence than it really actually has, you know. Yeah. And a lot of times, and a lot of times it actually, it's actually used to talk about something else. It's actually used to really refer to what, to what it's actually a, the incommensurability of values, which is a very different thing. Uh, 
I like you that. Know, it's a very, very, relativism and incommensurability of values are very different things, except that actually when most people talk about relativism, what they really, really mean, once you try to cash it out, what they really mean is the incommensurability of values, that there are two things that you and I might even agree are good things, except that they're not compatible, you know? Certainly. Because I, th I think to tie into this, my, my sort of goal I, this was sort of naive as when i was younger is to try to create you know i'm using the tools of reason and pursuit of knowledge to create a rational system of understanding and behaving in the world right a, a, a quote unquote correct system but in looking at you know we are bound by language you know what i mean we are sort of you can follow reason eventually you're going to be up against the glass wall of of language itself and then even further now in the age that we're in, and I'll kind of delve into Baudrillard, and so we're sort of created by, we have these this simulation that we're interacting with. So uh, just to clarify, so it's like my experience with sex now is mediated through pornography, which was originally mediated through the biological act of sex. But now my first experience is that, so now then it informs my quote-unquote real experience of the sexual act and you kind of can project that onto anything it's like my experience of going to school or you know any tv show or anything like that like you have that mediated experience that's informing how you understand the world and determining ways that you behave and so forth well i mean one of the ways that you know a lot of modern theorists talk about this is that they, they, they talk about it using two, two terms. I mean, you could use others, but this is one way of going about it, which is that in the, in, in, in the social world, certainly in, in the physical world, it's more difficult to make the argument, but in the social world, we have actually social ontologies. We have actually social entities that are created by the actions of, of human beings and other organisms interacting with each other and with the environment. And, at the level of one, uh, one of the ways of understanding those social ontologies is by talking about feedback, feedback loops. So an individual starts thinking in a particular way and hence it approaches the world in that particular way. And then that interaction then in a way creates a response that then goes, feeds back into the brain as signal. And then that, 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 that actually might re reinforce the signal or it might make it weaker, like, you know, like you would have in a system of cybernetics, right? And then what happens is that you and I are running a bunch of feedback loops in our in our in our cells. So our our mind, like what you and I call our our sense of self or our consciousness, you know the the you know the, the inner mind, in a way, it's kind of like a holographic picture that gets built by all these different feedback loops that are operating in there, and they acquire either preeminence or they go recede to the background, and you know you know and and they they mutate and morph. And then what you call your way of looking at the world or what you call like, you know, Cooper, Cooper as, a, as an eye, as a mind's eye is actually a holographic, you know, instantiation of all these feedback loops that are running at that particular point. But then in addition to that, at the, it, not only at the level of the mind, but also at the level of the world, another word that is actually useful is to talk about the notion of performativity, which actually which connects to ideas that you get out of, for example, the work of like, Bourdieu, you know, Pierre Bourdieu, but, you know, a bunch of other people too. Lacan, this you know. kind of, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not as familiar yes, with Lacan. Yeah, Lacan and also like people like, you know, Judith Butler, for example. The idea that a lot of social ontologies are actually performativity built. 
which ultimately means one way of understanding it very simply is that actually that that a new practice sometimes gets established and becomes actually an, a thing by it starts out by as an as if you start acting as if and if once you start acting as if long enough it actually at some point it acquires its existence but it is actually by this repetitive iteration of the same thing so so if I treat you in a particular way and I keep treating you that way and I keep treating you that way and other people keep treating you the way, in the end, actually, we create a category and we create a social entity. We create a social ontology that will have that as an object. For example, you know, in the past, there wasn't like, you know, in the past, there was not like ADHD, for example. And all of a sudden, lives changed. You know, we move from rural life and from people having to mostly be actively working with their bodies and stuff. And then we became this new kind of people that are office people and a new type of person right. that is mediated by, by language and by, by writing and by, you know, this other, this other, this other modalities. I which, think even to, to take that further by institutions, so the inter institutions of religion and uh, politics, and but school. schools, workplaces yeah, yeah. as well. So all of a sudden... You might be a, a, an organism that has a, a genotype and that genotype has this spectrum of phenotypic, possible phenotypic expression. And in a particular environment, maybe a hundred years ago, like in the, in, the, in the Texas panhandle, those traits were actually defined as actually, you know, Michael is an incredible worker and like Mary is going to be a very lucky gal marrying Michael because Michael can work with cattle you know, 17 hours a day and that dude doesn't get tired, you know, and he can keep eye on 10,000 things at the same time when he's in the middle of like this, this 20 cattle that are running around. He kind of like, kind of like knows where he is because he can like be everywhere and nowhere at once. You know, he gets that type of, of mapping of like the terrain, so to speak, which is great for when you're like dealing with cattle or hunting or whatever. Um, you take that individual and you put them in a time machine and you bring them to like, you know, Austin 21st century, you know, and you put him in a, in a middle school classroom or in a high school classroom. And that those very same, that very same genotype that produces a variety of phenotypic expression now produces the circumstance where this individual cannot be sitting on that freaking chair for eight hours a day. And that individual cannot actually memorize what he read. And that individual cannot keep track of like the assignments that were put on the board. And that individual, you know, is always fidgety, you know, and it's experiencing anxiety, whatever. And, and the fact is that it is the same individual. It's like you put him in a new institutional setup and in a new environment. And those things are going to create new consequences. And the fact is that the society will come and these institutions will come and will impose a judgment upon your, upon your output, you know, upon your behavior, both linguistic behavior and physical behavior. And then at some point, those judgments are going to be codified into, you know, policy, policy issues and into like, into like scientific, you know, um, descriptions that basically are going to create an object and the object is going to be, for example, HDHD. Right. That reminds me so much of a, so Foucault and sort of the history Absolutely, of madness. Absolutely. That's that exactly what it is. Yeah. Creating the creation of the self. But I also think, you know, in, in the sense to, to tie that into identity politics, it's these institutions that can label you 
then they can sort of control what you, you know, then you internalize that, right? And you start, you know what I mean? Through Lacan, like the sort of Lacanian analysis is you internalize what that feedback that you're receiving from institutions. And that's what I think is, to me, that's where identity, like there is, there has to be some recognition or like, I think there is a validity to what we call someone or something, right? I mean, words, words do ultimately matter. So I, I don't know how to negotiate that into a fully, you know, integrate integrative social construct, but I do think it is important. And I think that's something that's getting missed in this, you know what I mean? Maybe it's gone too far, but I don't know. I feel like there has to be a synthesis there. I mean, I think one way of trying to think about this is actually to look at what the people in like the generation of 1968 tried to do. So like you get a guy, for example, like Gilles Deleuze and Guattari, you know, they wrote like, you know, they wrote Capitalism and Schizophrenia and they wrote 10,000 Plateaus and then they wrote a bunch of other stuff. But in those two books, one of the arguments that they make is that actually that most of these modern societies are totalitarian and that um, that the goal should be one of revolution and that that revolution is based on a type of practice of existence that um, that what it does is actually it always disrupts these entities that are being created, you know. So for them, the, you know, the utopia that they were pursuing was one where people are in a way permanently in flux and permanently reinventing themselves. And it is a type of anarchism, one way of interpreting a type of romantic anarchism, you know, and an aesthetic anarchism. Um, in the end, I think what the legacy of, of that way of thinking was one, I mean, you can see a similar thing in the case of Foucault, actually, where he talks about power and he talks about how, you know, every power creates a regime of truth and then it pins people down, so to speak, and it becomes totalitarian. In the case of Foucault, to his credit, I think he figured out at the end that actually that the human condition is one where you always need to be, in order to be something, you have to be individuated. And in order to be individuated, individuation has to do with you actually, in a way, becoming a something. And when you become a something, in a way, you're limiting possibilities. So if you keep all the possibilities always open all the time, number one, not only you actually, your, your, your brain as a hologram collapses, you go into schizophrenia. You know, you just simply lose it because there's no organizing principle. You just go nuts. But secondly... At another level of simply social life, what happens is actually you cannot achieve anything because you cannot actually, given that everything is permanently in motion, you can actually never, all your actions can come to nothing, so to speak. Because you, in, in a way, for something to become a something rather than a nothing, you, it has to kind of like stop for a moment and right. it has to create an effect and it has to become a something. So in a way, in a way, it's a little bit of a sad epilogue to a revolutionary time because what people realized is that actually by breaking all the rules, you ended up with nothing. You end up with the schizophrenic self or you end up with actually the narcissistic self, which is what we have ended up with, which actually you make an equivalence between your, your id 
whatever flat whatever passing feeling you're feeling in a particular moment and you actually become a slave to that which is actually i think what has really in fact happened what i and, and in social media you see you know you see a lot of that getting played out i mean on the one hand people create a brand they create a hologram that is actually this aesthetic a simulation yeah, yeah simulacra they, of themselves yeah they create this thing that is actually what they what gives them social capital and they exchange it with other people um, but on the other hand, what is behind the exchange is actually a notion of like and dislike that is really ultimately connected to a very impoverished narcissistic self that only responds Pavlovian. It just responds on the basis of what is it that I feel right here, right now, you know, and, and out of that, you cannot construct anything. That's when a lot of those people, you take them out of the social, of the social media world, they're just little lost kids. They're simply not there there. They're just these little kids that react with a, as, as a bundle of, they're not even emotion. And they're not, they're actually, I think what they are, is actually they have emotionality, which is a different thing. You know, in the ideal world, you would have people that have actually an identity, so to speak. And that, that identity would be connected to kind of like what I would call passion, an individual of action and passion and conscience, right? One step down from that would be an individual that either has emotion you know, and or has a notion of identity. Some people have a notion of identity without emotion. They just become robots or whatever. Or some people have emotion, but they don't have identity. But a lot of the prototypes that I'm seeing walking out there are people that don't even have a notion of the self or even real emotion. Because actually, to have real emotion, you have to have at least some commitment to a fixed object, you know. And these people, I think, are like a step before that. It's actually the reactions are knee-jerk, knee-jerk reactions. They just have emotionality. They're just kind of like kids flaking out, you know, that's what you get. And then, you know, and then you get the positive side of that, which is actually the notion of like, oh, cool. Oh, cool. You know, but behind the oh, cool is nothing other than the fact that this particular week, that was the object that everybody was vibing about. You know, it's kind of like, I mean, a lot of people criticize hipster, hipster culture around those same ideas, because a lot of people say that the hipsters actually are completely supposedly obsessed with authenticity, except that it's actually the authenticity of the crowd of other hipsters and for this week. Well, it's all, I mean, it's also simul. it's, you know, capitalism has given us a multiplicity of identities to choose from and then we don't. So we slip into hipster one day or, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> social justice warrior or... You and know, in the alt right end, or what what have you, you know, or and, even and, you know anything else it's like i dress up like a lumberjack or i dress up like a star wars character and you know that's cute when you're like you know that's cute when you're like a preteen or a teen you know it's cute when you're like 12 or 13 but when 30 year old men are doing <laughs> it or 30 year old women it really ain't that cute anymore and it creates incredible problems for society when you have actually this grown men acting like confused little teens i mean my daughter and my son are 11 years old and 14 year old respectively I mean, my daughter is almost 11 and yeah they're in that world where they're exploring their identity and whatever and then i always joke that you know in, in, in high school or in middle school like there's you know a, a young woman in, in in those high schools you know they spend two months being a goth and then they spend four months in the in the volleyball team and then they spend you know they spend 10 months being a punk rocker and they spend like four months being bisexual and so on and so forth. 
but normally after a time that thing becomes metastable and, and they become something and get you mind you some people don't even go through those stages in those ways i mean for example i mean my daughter is 10 almost 11 and she's just an incredibly well put together person you know and she doesn't even seem to really operate like that she's an individual that actually yeah she engages in activities but she is not a shell for for simulacra to play themselves out for like a couple of weeks until the next one comes and possesses her so to speak you know um but um but yeah i mean so 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 there is that so so you know you can see these things again like what we were talking about you can see them as actually being the result of these feedback loops or you can see them as the result of performatives and you know and 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 and, and the tricky part then becomes okay so we want to be liberated people and we want to have self-realization. So we want to have a certain kind of freedom, you know. Um, but on the other hand, like you very well said, you know, um, that needs to happen in a way that doesn't simply create nothing or creates chaos, you know. And hence, you know, you need to figure out how is it that we can kind of like have our cake and eat it too. How is it that we can claim that we have liberty and freedom and that, you know, that, that, that we can be ourselves while at the same time, you know, honor the fact that everybody's always going to be something by, by at least for a moment standing somewhere and in a way claiming that, that, that place. I mean, one way of doing it is that actually we might want to say, yeah, at some point you need to, to become something. You need to, in a way, stop wanting to be everything. And that what is important in the revolutionary spirit or the utopian impulse is that actually that you to, to the extent that it's possible that you control the terms of that to the greatest extent possible and that all that we can aspire is like yeah we're going to be programmed in the end and that certain things have to become fixed points at least for for a period of time so that we can achieve something but that at least actually i chose those points instead of actually society or instead of like some institution that is super oppressive or some people that have all the money and hence they call all the shots, you know, or, or what have you. And hence that's kind of like what remains. But the, 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 the old 1960s ideas of total liberation is actually, it's impossible. Total liberation would be, in a way, would be total annihilation, you know. Because you cannot simply be standing nowhere, you know. You always have to be standing somewhere, you know. And at some point, as you and I know, every place that you will stand on, it will create, require a commitment that you can then construe as actually a limitation or an oppressive thing. Right. I mean, revolution is probably the most authoritarian thing you can, you right. can do, right? Right. And the fact is, like, as you and I know, a lot of people claim that they want to be in participants in a revolution and what they're actually they're actually followers in a revolution you know so the big irony is that in the revolutions you actually are mostly led by simply the set the, the new set of the new set of people that will become your rulers right you know and that that harkens back to ideas that that people like Nietzsche had ideas about like you know do every human being really wants to be liberated and can every human being really embrace the type of self and the type of life that you have to live in order to be this modern self Truly free yeah. yeah and what his answer was no he said first of all that a lot of people don't want that that that's just simply scary as hell 
And secondly, he thought that a lot of people don't want that because that stuff is a lot of work. Right. Like a ton of work. And he also said that actually some people are simply born followers rather than leaders, that they're just simply, they don't even resonate like that. That it's not, it's not even what they're, it doesn't mean that you cannot socialize them into believing that this is what they want to do. But for them, would not be an experience of, of like satisfaction. It would be an experience that would just be filled of inadequacy, sense of inadequacy and sense of anxiety. And I see it, I have to say. Well, I mean, I think that's what the conditions have created is this, it's both of, both of those things. Because there is, and we've removed, I mean, we've, I think we've stepped into some kind of very, you know, it seems like an accelerated simulation at this point to where, how do we ever, we can't, how do we ever grasp the real or anything to make, to base our, you know, system, or I guess our ontology or what, what you know, how do we develop a system out whenever there is no ideal truth for us to, or if there is an ideal truth, you know, we can only work in, in these sort of maybe like a, a neo-pragmatist, like a Rorty and analysis yeah, where yeah. you have to sort of take what works best like your example of of getting to round rock it's like we there's a probably a better way there's tons of roads there but there's a pr one way is maybe better than I'll, several others i'll tell you something i i really think that one of the things that we really can do is actually take this liberal modern notion of the self and this life that we claim is the best and also qualify that and in a way open up the system for other ways of being. I see a lot of my students, and some of them even tell me this, they tell me that they feel an incredibly high level of anxiety and inadequacy because they think that they're supposed to have a happening life and that they're supposed to be clever and creative and like, you know, and daring and all these things that they're supposed to be. And number one, many of them tell me that they don't even have any interest in being any of those things. And number two, that they're no good at it. And what comes out of that is that they feel incredibly anxious and inadequate and many of them self-medicate or actually literally get medicated by, right. by, by whatever, by the pharma, you know? And, and, and I would, really would like to live in a society that allows, that can create a multiplicity of social spaces to give, to give, to give a place to all this kind of like human biodiversity. Instead of saying that we all need to act like Nietzschean overmen <laughs> right. and that if you don't, then you're a loser and you should be dead and your life is not worth it. And that the fact is that this is what everybody wants and that this is what America is all about and this is what democracy and liberty are all about. And I'm, and I'm like, no, why don't we try to take a more a softer interpretation of all those things and acknowledge the fact that not everybody is going to be equally talented and not everybody is going to be equally talented in the same ways and that not everybody has an experience of being that is similar to the other and that not everybody needs to conform to a particular experience of being and that even god forbid that it might be perfectly fine for some people to actually just be followers rather than leaders and just simply chill you know and that that's perfectly fine because i think what we've done is that by claiming that we're adding more choices, it appears that in a way, really, what we've ended up is actually with a lot less choices. Everybody thinks that they're so individualistic. And what I really see is that everybody, the most, most people are simply like people working in dead-end jobs, being consumers, buying stuff that it all looks kind of the same in the end and not really feeling particularly happy about it. 
and, and yeah, I can see how this particular world, the way that it's built, gives incredible opportunities to a subset of people that are incredibly self-directed, have incredible amounts of energy, can sleep very little and perform a lot, and people that actually are very creative and very, very, very into taking high risks and going places. But that's only a very small group of people. And, and everybody else, to me, doesn't seem to be like that. And secondly, I think I don't see why we should impose on them th that goal and, and, and also make them internalize that goal, you know, which doesn't really mean which this is the this is the yet the other turn, right? Which doesn't really mean that all we need to do is go back to the traditional society where basically, you know, people were treated like dirt, you know, if they were not like, you know, super alpha, you know. So in a way, it's actually how can you embrace this level of difference without bringing back the oppression to it and without also claiming that the, that the, the endorsement of difference is actually an endorsement of actually of simply lip you know lip service political correctness identity politics that actually end up having absolutely no consequences in people's normal life you know and hence i find that there the, the solution is somewhere in there you know and i think the solution unfortunately it's not going to be one that conforms to the way your brain works because from what you just told me what you seem to like it's actually unity of vision you want one system that is internally consistent and logical and that everybody follow everything follows from it i think w w the system that i've been thinking that might work is one where we have to in a way we can never eliminate a type of inner pluralism the system is going to be a hybrid and which means that it's not really going to like it's not going to be connect in in in, in a type of logical consistency it will be a, like a patchwork that all that we can claim for it is that kind of like it balances out right. the energies. In a way, it's kind of like the yin-yang. It's kind of like the yin-yang dynamic that actually it's not a logically consistent thing, system. It's actually one where two energies are kept in, in a type of dynamic tension and that that dynamic tension never will have a final resolution. It will just simply always acquire its existence by actually leaning against each other, you know. But those worlds for philosophically... So like a... Like a like a dialectic yeah for philosophically minding minded people that that is an ugly picture you know because what they want is actually a beautiful pristine picture where everything has its proper place and everything will stay there whereas what what i'm what i'm defending is something that is actually you know it's it's untidy right and it's always simply it's always simply an accomplishment for like a moment you know and he will always get out of balance you know interesting because I think that, yeah, because I think the problem is developing that idea. Like, what does that look like in a like from a praxis standpoint? Because otherwise, you know, I can, and I enjoy kind of playing with this idea of meaning. And, you know, I can perform these micro-revolutionary behaviors, uh, you know, like I can take on a different identity that's that's not mine. You know what I mean? I can dress, I can wear a dress, right? And that messes with people. That's a kind of a revolutionary act. I mean, it's kind of. It's sort somewhat of a, I guess, navel gazing maybe, but you know, in many ways, it sometimes feels like those micro revolutionary behaviors are the only space that revolution can exist at this point in our in our history. 
at this particular moment because the totality, the totality, capitalism and the system is so monolithic that it just, it absorbs everything. It attenuates any type of revolutionary spirit. So I always use this example of like, um, you know, capitalism will sell you a Che Guevara t-shirt so that you can, you know what I mean? You through the, the act of purchasing this item, you are taking on a revolutionary identity. But at the, at the same time, it's media. It's by like, like you feel like you're taking action, but you're really just contributing to the system in the end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for example, I'll tell you one way that it can be done. I mean, I, I think I think one of the things that we need to do is to get out of actually of, of 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 our heads, so to speak, and get out of the idea that by now has become incredibly difficult to get out of that idea and that headspace. That actually, that buying a a Che Guevara T-shirt is in any shape or form an endorsement of any kind of revolutionary anything. It's it's just simply not, you know. Um, it's only, I mean, at the best case scenario, it is at the level of, like, literally at the level of a meme. Right. You know, you are not really transcending memetics, you know. You know Certainly. Um, but, I, and I think we've had a lot of that, and it has, it has given us very little in return. And hence, I think we should try to go back to creating possibilities of difference rather than at the level of discourse, actually at the level of social reality. I'll give you an example. This is a concrete example, and it's like a real example. In the United States, more and more, the education becomes homogeneous, which being said, wherever you go study elementary school or secondary school, you're going to get pretty much the same, the same outcome. Schools are organized the same. Curricula are the same. Um, it's simply a, a massive homogenation of a process of socialization. It's a single silo. Society is also becoming more and more one where you cannot make it in the world if you don't go through this system and it happens to be only the one and only system so in that regard it's very limiting and you could even call it totalitarian well one way that we could try to make it better in the ways that we're talking about is that actually we could take this monolithic system and we could just break it and we could simply create a proliferation of pedagogical institutions and pedagogical experiences that both take you to different places through different ways and also that take you to the same place through different ways. And I'll give you an example. Um, Austria. Austria is a very traditional society. It's a very rich society. Austria is a very interesting... Um, very interesting educational system because it's one that has a lot of different avenues. So for example, there's like the classic kids that are gonna go on to the university and maybe even to graduate studies. And those kids go through like elementary school, what you know I would call like primary school, and then they go to um, what is called the gymnasium, which is kind of like this school, kind of like what you and I might call like a prep school. And then you get yourself through that, and then that the people that go there are people that are want to go to the university and, and want to be kind of like quote unquote scholarly in some way, shape, or form, you know. And then those people, lo and behold, they go to the university and come out on the other side. But they also have this other thing that is actually, and also you can do that in two ways. You can go into the gymnasium and you can do the science route if you're like a guy that is a person that is good with science and good with numbers and stuff, or you can go the language route. 
if you're the type of person that is very good with languages and history and things of that nature. So, so already creates differentiation, but also diversity and pluralism of, 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 of both of, of tracks and also of outcomes, which actually are good because it actually takes care of two phenotype, two phenotypic types, which is a really good thing. But that doesn't take care of everybody. What about the people that actually are not abstract-minded people? Well, they have this other track, which is called, like, they call it Hot Schule, which is kind of like high school. And that track is actually kind of like, you still get a diploma, but it's actually not, it's not a prep school scenario. It's kind of like, it doesn't have that level of scholarly um, aspiration and, and, mind you, pressure, really, you know. So if you were never really particularly good at school, but you were not super horrible, you could go down the Hochschule path and you can just still get educated and get a diploma, but there's not this pressure connected to like scholarly excellence. You just get a freaking diploma, right? And then you can go from there. Sometimes you can go to business school or different things. You can do different things. They have another path, which is called, which is called Volksschule, which is like kind of like school for the people. And in that path, it's a path that is kind of like what in the United States we usually call vocational school, you know, and hence you just learn something that is practical, you know, like, you know, you learn to be like a, you know, like, like, like an auto mechanic, or you learn to deal with like fixing, fixing machinery that is connected to technology, industrial machinery, or you study like refrigeration and like, and heating and become like a heating and refrigeration expert and become part of that guild and make like serious money because those people make 80,000 euros or something. They make serious money. Um, there's also a whole pathway that is connected to what you and I would call like apprenticeship, you know, and hence, you know, the government pays you money because it's one way also of keeping you, you know, socially solvent rather than to become a social parasite for the rest of your life because they understand that that what we really want is to produce citizens that actually have a place in the world and also that will become productive so they'll give you money but it's actually it's actually they pay you a salary so that you can actually learn a trade and you learn a trade in the place already so for example if you want to be like a chef you can actually go down an apprenticeship route and you actually literally work at a restaurant and they teach you to cook. And then once a year, you have to go during the summertime for a month or two and do like intensive coursework. And then they make you take some exams or whatever, just to make sure that you got the theory part straight. And then after three years, they give you a diploma that tells you that actually you are now a chef and then you can sell yourself like that in the world, so to speak. Um, sometimes you can use different paths to get to the same place. I'll give you an example. Um, there's, for example, if you want to be a midwife in Germany, for instance, if you want to be a midwife, you might go down the path where you go to the, to the, to the high school and then you go into like university and then you study nursing school and out of the nursing school, you become a midwife, like kind of like a midwife nurse, so to speak. Um, that requires you to be kind of like a person that does well with books and does well at school and whatever. And some people are not and hence... In, in a bad world, those people will just, they will be, that will preclude them from doing that. You know, there's another path to get to become a midwife, which actually is actually, you go through like the type of like apprenticeship program that I told you that happens within 
as part of like the obstetrics and gynecology programs that actually is at a medical school or a medical hospital. And hence you bypass all the bookworm stuff and you actually just get training on site, so to speak. And then, yeah, you get like a, a cluster of complementary modules of learning so that you make sure that you have your stuff. But mostly it's a hands-on type of stuff, which works for some people extremely well. And actually it allows them to be a midwife without having to be like, like, like school people, so to right. speak. And, and that's one example where you have a society that actually has a real commitment to diversity. And one that is not simply a diversity just based on like political correctness and me telling you like, you know, you don't have to be into theory without, you know, you can still be a cool human being or whatever. It's not one that is based on simply this, this tokens of acknowledgement and recognition, but it's more like, no, you know what? You're different from real for real. And what we're going to do is actually, we're going to create social spaces so that those differences can actually have a proper place of being. Right. You know, like for example, I'll give you an example about the United States. So we can talk about, oh, you know, I'm going to respect your, like, you know, your diversity. So like, you know, for example, we can say that we're going to respect, you know, some, some components of like, you know, a type of feminist perspective, you know, and mostly in the classroom is actually respecting like the female experience or whatever, you know, um, and hence, you know, you know, to use stereotypes, you know, Joe, the frat boy will have to sit there in class and listen to Stacy talk about X, Y, or Z, you know, from her point of view of epistemological privilege, right? You know, the way it feels to her and whatever, you know, and then we all respect each other and we write these essays about how like listening to others' perspectives was really like enlightening and wonderful and whatever. And then we go home and everybody knows the drill. Or we can do something else. We can decide... Okay, the feminist agenda in part is actually an agenda of difference. So why don't we create then policies in society, both at the, at the, at the, you know, you know, at the workplace and in government and in terms of social services that actually give real teeth to the existence of those differences and make them, make them basically make for a social landscape where those differences can be lived in real robust ways that lead to self-realizations for people who have that difference. And hence, for example, one case is like they do in Europe. Women make kids for the time being. Males don't make kids. And hence, you know, that's just a reality of difference. That particular organism makes these things. And, um, and what they do, for example, in some places in Europe, they that they give you they give you six months maternity leave, you know, they just do. Um, but that, and, and, and in that way, it would be a real recognition of difference in a way that would be, that would not just simply be at the level of language or at the level of discourse or at the level of like memetics or at the level of public opinion. You can have a big change in public opinion that has absolutely no effects in the world because it's just simply spin, you know, um, and hence, you know, those are just some simple examples, but, but some examples that depend on actually changing institutional makeups and making them embody values that are connected to those differences. It, but they also involve social investment. Right. None of this thing is for free. However, the other thing is to not also for free, because what happens is actually when we don't keep things in ways that allow for accommodation of all these different differences, there's actually a social cost that somebody's going to be paying. So 
it, making just one size fits all, it's also costly socially in a lot of million different ways. First of all, there's actually a lot of untapped potential that just goes to waste. A lot of people are marginalized. So actually they need to have government money or they go into criminal activity or they go into like, you know, drug addiction and it creates effects downstream and upstream that we all know. And hence, you know, those things, but those things belong to what is called like the realm of externalities. So those are costs, except that the system doesn't want to acknowledge them as costs because what they're doing is they passing that cost downstream and upstream. They pass it to the government and downstream to the people. And, it, and if the government is just financed by the people, then actually they're just passing it down to the, to the citizens anyway. Because the fact is that the government only has the money that the citizens produce and give them. Because the government ultimately is, doesn't produce anything. You know, it's just, it's, that's just not the nature of the government. Right. You know, um, and hence, you know, th th those are some of the things that, that, that could be done. Um, the fact is that, you know, in the case of the United States right now, I mean, the status quo is not interested in doing any of those things, you know. Um, but, the, but the fact is that the, the, the extreme components of both parties, I think, are, are, are kind of like scratching where it's really itching. And they're just doing it according to different different modalities, modalities that you and I might agree or disagree. But I think at least those extremes are actually trying to 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 kind of like get around those things, you know. But I do believe, like I said at the beginning, that the two main parties, the 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 the, the, the status quo, the mainstream constituents, are basically two flavors of the same modality. Oh, and the modality is that actually that everything is perfectly fine, because that's code word for everything is perfectly fine for me. Which is fine. I mean, I get it, you know. I mean, I get, I get, I see how that works, you know. Right. Um, but, but it is not fine for like, you know, literally millions upon millions of people. Um, so you, interestingly enough, you know, you know, on one side, you have an individual like, like Bernie Sanders saying that we should have like, you know, universal health care or that we should have like, you know, universal, you know, university education which makes perfect sense in the sense like if this country is going to be um, viable in the global economy, it needs to create an edge at the level of like, you know, the new emerging technologies. And hence, it's going to be a, an economy that is going to have to run on incredibly highly skilled people, you know, unless we want to just basically become like a gigantic Honduras and, and convince white Americans just to work for nothing, you know. Which, you know, that's one way to do it, too. I mean, we can decide that we're just going to de-skill or, or embrace the fact that we got de-skilled and that we just are going to compete. We're going to look at our benchmarks. Well, we could compete with Honduras and we can compete with Malaysia. So then, you know, the, 900, the, the 90 million people that don't have jobs, they can become labor Malaysians, you know, and compete for the same T-shirt jobs or the same, like, whatever. You know, um, if we don't want to do that, then we need to invest in ways that these people can actually get themselves incredibly highly educated without actually going bankrupt in the process. Or like I see my students, my students cannot even study because they, many of them have 30 hour jobs. I mean, they're mediocre students in part, but not completely, but in part they're mediocre students because actually they're not real students. They're just workers that try to study you know, at night or whatever, or whenever they're not like, you know, studying, 
you know, they walk around like zombies. I mean, I mean, there are other reasons why they work so many hours connected to ideas about consumption that we have in the United States that everybody thinks that, you know, that they need to have like a car and a big apartment and a gigantic television and eat outside all the time because for, for some reason we cannot cook. I'm not really sure why, <laughs> you know. But if you're going to do all those things, you need to pay for them and hence you need to work. So this idea that, oh, I have no money, I'm always like, yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah you, <laughs> I'm guilty of that. You know, well, a lot of people are. I mean, it's a whole cultural, you know, mindset, you know, and, and hence, you know. So, yeah, I mean, like, you know, you know, that that would be something that could be done. And on the side of like, you know, the side of like the Trump administration, for example, you have you have an individual, you have an individual like, you know, like Ivanka Trump, you know, who basically is trying to promote, for example, at least six weeks of maternity leave, you know, which I mean, is certainly better than two weeks or three weeks, you know, and hence at least is something that, that puts something concrete out there. Right. Anyway. Interesting. I don't know. I, I still feel like that. I mean, that's, those are approaches. I guess that's something. That's a starting point, right? But ultimately, we are up against, you know, the ecological constraints of the real world. And since capitalism has been, you know, capital has become detached from the real, everything is a virtual, even, you know what I mean? How do we, you know what I mean? There's got to be a reckoning in terms of resources right. and so forth. So how do, it's like, we will have to, de <laughs> we sort of do need, to revert back a little bit if we're going to have a be able to sustain this amount of i mean there's no way we can sustain a western system of living like the west the united states standard of living across the world for seven billion people i don't think that's a practical goal that we should we could possibly even achieve in, even if we wanted to right there's simply not enough fossil fuels to make that happen so the question becomes what do I mean? Do you, I mean, you have the accelerationist approach, which is to speed these things up until the conditions reach a point where we can, we are forced by uh, the environment to change or, you know what I mean? Does that, do you, do you see where I'm coming from? Yeah, sure. I mean, and I, I'm not sure that there's any tidy way of like really exploring those, um, you know, those different scenarios. I mean, one of the scenarios could be that in a way the, environmental pressures keep increasing and they increase to such a point that the market needs to react to it from the point of view of simply consumer need and hence you know so for example i don't really worry very much that that trump wants to eliminate a lot of like the the regulations that were connected to fuel efficiency for automobiles in the united states because the fact is that the rest of the world already decided that they wanted to have cars that ran on less oil because oil is expensive. And hence, like if the United States wants to sell cars in the global market, you know, they need to, and even in the U S market, they need to be able to sell cars that want, that will be sold. And hence the fact is that, you know, there's already a market pressure for a car that can give you 30 miles per gallon rather than 20, you know, yeah, some people have muscle cars and whatever. But the fact is that, broadly speaking, if you're a global player, most people want to have more fuel-efficient automobiles because the fact is that 
they live in places where, you know, gasoline is expensive. And hence, you know, you know, America cannot just simply completely disregard the world, the, where the world is, especially if you want to be a global power. So, I mean, I don't think that those things are going to have any consequence, to be, to be honest, you know. Like this idea that, oh my God, the United States is not embracing the Kyoto Conventions or whatever, or the Paris Agreement. I don't really think it matters because I think by now, at least whatever the Paris Agreement was about, you know, that battle was already won at the level of the market. And hence, I think like, you know, a lot of countries are already developing technologies that are kind of like next generation, you know, and in a way, it will, at some point it will become like Americans are producing stuff that is totally primitive and ridiculous that nobody wants. It's kind of like when we were building those ridiculous cars in the early 80s, <laughs> like nobody wanted them. And, be, and, then, and then Japan started killing us. And then what the Americans did do, they try to make those those Japanese cars. You know, they try to figure out how Ford can make those cars because no American wanted to buy like a Ford Pinto. Right. You know, they were like, no way. I don't want that horrible thing. You know, we, we already are like in, in we move to the next century, so to speak. You know, we don't want to go back to like Stone Age. You know, and hence, I don't really worry about about that particular component. On the other hand, the fact is that we might be getting close to a place of like, you know, depletion or whatever. At that point, you have two options. I mean, not two options, but I mean, two or three avenues. One of them is like, you know, we might simply get lucky and find, for example, ways of doing like fusion, for example. And in that case, well, at least we solve that part of the equation. You know, it might very well be the case that we that that never comes to be practical, and that when what it, and I think I do believe that what is going to happen is that the whole world is going to go like nuclear, like with with like you know with fission. You know, like we will just have like nuclear reactors, and when we will just say we'll say to ourselves that we will find ways of like you know burying it in safe ways and you know we'll just tell ourselves we'll tell ourselves that 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 this is going to be all right because we don't have any option other than to tell ourselves that 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 rubbish you know um or it might very well be the case that we go into a situation where we combine different technologies i mean unfortunately when obama came to power nine years ago you know the first obama administration one of the points that he was defending was, you know, one of his proposers, you know, for his platform was simply to try to solve the problem of America, the skilling and, and, and to solve the problem of America, not having like jobs in, in real industry by actually engaging yet again in a type of like, you know, project of public works. But it was one that was built around the idea of a green economy that we're going to rebuild the infrastructure, but we're going to rebuild it with green technology and that we're going to create green jobs because this stuff needs to be maintained and replaced and fixed and like monitored and regulated and whatever and that it creates millions of jobs the idea was brilliant i mean and it's like it kills a lot of it, it deals with a lot of problems at once you know problem of infrastructure of jobs of education and of going back to being in another new leading edge technology not only not only information technology but the other the other big one you know and kind of like getting ourselves ahead in that in that curve of innovation. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. He even um, named or, or elected a, some, a guy that was actually called like a green czar. I remember that. Yeah. This black dude, which I found to be also interesting at a point of like symbol, symbolism. This guy went out there, incredibly talented guy. He ended up being a guy that was quite 
radical to give it a word industry didn't like the guy didn't like the message the guy got completely killed and eliminated he was either made to go or they they you know or he actually you know resigned i'm not really sure he was not green czar for more than a year and a half nobody was named in his place and that would there were none of that was ever heard again green technology was never heard again other than the fact that Rush Limbaugh was joking <laughs> about the $9 billion investment on something having to do with solar panels that never worked and it was like the, the joke of everything, which makes sense, it should have been. Um, and then that was the end of that. But yeah, there is a possibility that we could just create a, a, a heterogeneous system where you use like, you use like, you know, geothermal and like, you know, you use tides and you use solar and you use wind and by a combination of things, you get yourself to a good place. You use basically the planetary entropy and you make, you harness it and you, you, you get, you get energy out of it, you know, or there's the third possibility, which is that we, we just simply get ourselves really close to the edge. And what happens is that the species becomes like some species are like that. Some species that are at a very precarious place in, in an ecosystem what happens to them is that they go through cyclical, they go into a, into a biological economy of like, of booms and busts. For example, um, foxes. Foxes are pretty high up in, 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 in ecosystems. They are, um, they breed quite a bit, um, you know, they're, so they're quite fertile. Um, and, they're, and they're carnivores. So it's this, there's this creature that actually is high up the food chain. It, it's, it's a carnivore, so it eats things further down the food chain and actually reproduces pretty, pretty quickly. So it can, it, it can become very numerous very fast, you know, and they're very clever. Um, and a lot of times, a lot of like foxes find themselves because of these qualities, which in fact are similar to the, to the human qualities. They find themselves in a situation where their population dynamics are ones based on booms and then catastrophes. So for example, their population explodes to 7x and then they get to that limit and actually they go through a population collapse and they go one, down to 1x and they do it and, and simply that becomes the dynamics of that species. So that species just becomes a species that instead of keeping relatively stable according to a particular population level and just gravitate, just waver a little bit like other species, this one's actually just go through those processes. And it might very well be the case that we will become a species like that. We will become a species that actually explodes demographically. And when things are get stuck, then we actually lose like a billion people. You know, in fact, what we're beginning to see, except that, you know, really macroscopic, you know, like really, really macroscopic, we might start having really serious troubles with water or really serious troubles with food production and or certainly food access and we will have which we're having and we will have serious problems with um displacements of people like what we call like environmental refugees both at the level of food and water but also at the level of simply like you know you know what in the best case scenario are like aleatory weather phenomena that destroy areas like you know all the coasts are obviously highly populated and highly at risk because they're very close to sea level and they're like the first place where actually the really big forces of nature hit. So like, you know, all this area of the Gulf 
it's gonna keep being bad. There's no way that that's ever gonna get better. And but the same thing plays out all over the world, like right, you know, like in Bangladesh and this and that and the other. You know, it's not only there; it's like everywhere in the world. And also desertification, right? You know, the, the growth of deserts. You know, it's happening in Brazil with the deforestation. It happened to California. The desert is growing. You have now all the fires that we had that are the worst that we've had maybe in several centuries. Um, and in fact, some, some Californians are already moving to Oregon as we speak because they decided what comes is not good. Um, and hence, we might move to a world like that where, you know, it would be great that we could kind of like come up with that kind of like a Christ, Christian redemptive narrative that human be or like a Stephen King narrative where like we see the errors of our ways and finally we do like something really wonderful but I suspect that what is really going to happen we're going to go into a very long protracted time of maybe even thousands of years where we'll just become more like a Mad Max type of like species where we just go through this you know through a period where like human life is just incredibly chaotic and um and with like stretches of time of relative stability and also pockets of stability you know or like the world like water world you know where you just have different people that occupy a very very diverse social ecosystem you know but i think we're going to be seeing water crises and and food crises and we're going to see environmental refugees i mean the fact is that all the katrina people that ended up in 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 houston and never went away are environmental refugees we can call them whatever the hell else we want to call them but that's exactly what they are and you know and i'm sure that harvey has created a bunch of environmental refugees that certainly i don't know anything about maybe you do but i don't but i'm sure that a lot of those i mean apparently in in, in because of harvey apparently about thirty-five thousand houses got like destroyed i heard that only 10 percent of those houses had actually flood insurance yeah and hence, actually, I'm sure that a lot of that stuff will never be reconstructed. The fact is that what is going to happen is that those people are going to, like, simply migrate to another area. And that area will just, in fact, like what happened in New Orleans. In New Orleans lost half of his population anyway, and he never really recovered. I mean, New Orleans is still there, but it's a different, it's a new New Orleans. It's another one. I, in fact, I was there this summer. And, um, and it is quite depopulated. And it was actually an environmental migration, you know. So, very uplifting. Right, right. We have a bright future <laughs> for sure. But I think I think that's actually a good stopping point. I think we've we've been going for almost three hours, believe it or not. So okay, uh, Doctor Marquez, thanks so much for coming out today and, and joining me. Thank you very much for inviting me. My All pleasure. Right. We will be back next week, Schizoid fans. So, have a good one. <laughs>